Welcome back to another episode of Everything Aviation Podcast. It's not every day do you get to interview one of your aviation inspirations and heroes, but today I get to. Uh, this man has a phenomenal aviation career and it is growing by the second. Qualified flying instructor, straight out of training, Tornado F3 pilot, longest serving Red Arrows pilot in history. Um, he's also a member of the Blades Aerobatic Team and awarded an MBE and soloed a Spitfire. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Mike Ling. Mike, how are we? I'm good, Mikey. Thank you. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, it's quite. I, I like the introduction. Thank you very much. Well, no problems at all. Was, we don't usually get to talk to someone who's done all that, so I thought I have to I have to get it all out there. Oh, it's uh, no, I, I'm very very proud of what I've achieved, and um, well, looking forward to what hopefully after all this coronavirus rubbish goes away, what what we can do in the future. It'd be be really interesting. I was going to say because if you've done all that, you've definitely got so much more to come. Well, yeah, I think um, there are certain things I want to try and achieve, certainly before uh, before I lose my medical rating and I'm too old to fly. So, uh, yeah, watch this space. Mike, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off with what I ask everyone who comes on this channel is where did your interest in flying come from? Well, I grew up in Biggin Hill in Kent, which uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will, uh, will know was a very famous Battle of Britain station. Um, so just on the outskirts of London, um, I, I was born and bred there. Uh, my family weren't from the military. My grandfather was um, air crew in the Second World War, Lancasters, but he he um, qualified at the very end of the war. In fact, May two, 1945. Uh, so the very end, just just around the VE day is when he, he got his qualification on the Lancaster on 49 Squadron. So he wow. then took part in a lot of the missions afterwards flying the Lancaster. So the, mainly the repatriation of um, prisoner of war from Italy. Oh wow! So uh, Operation Dodge and Operation Exodus, flying over, picking in, in in Lancasters that were stripped out. They put a load of POWs down the back and flew them back. Um, so he took part in those. He never actually dropped a bomb in anger, from what I can gather from his logbook. But uh, so he was he was a big inspiration. You know, just listening to some of his stories. Sadly, he's no longer with us. But uh, uh, then being in Biggin Hill, you know, every year there's an air show. Um, aviation was always rife at Biggin Hill. It was fantastic to see. It was still an active RAF base while I was growing up. There were no flying units there, but it was the officer and air crew selection center. So the, the village, the town was, um, there was RAF life, if you like. And every time you, you went past the station, you'd see guys on the gate with guns. And you know, it was just something that I thought was uh, was very intriguing, very interesting. And then going to the air show every year was really where I caught the bug and, and fell in love with airplanes. And that was really where I, I had the interest in becoming a pilot. Fantastic. And then I take it that your interest in joining the RAF came from like your, your granddad and also living near near an RAF base, which was big in Hill at the time. Yeah, that was exactly it. And uh, as soon as I was eligible, I joined the Air Training Corps. So I became an air cadet, um, must have been around 13 um, straight away and and just fell in love with that as well. Became a very active member of, of Biggin Hill Squadron Air Training Corps and, and just loved it. The opportunities that that, that um, organization provides is is really incredible and and is a very good stepping stone to to joining the real royal air force it's brilliant i'm a civilian instructor with a 172 squadron hayward teeth and i have to say it, it's fantastic and seeing what the cadets get to do and what their opportunities are is absolutely amazing as well so i know exactly where you're coming from there yeah it, it was it's definitely a, a part of you know, it was it shaped my teenage years um and and then as i said before it was a definite brilliant springboard into becoming a Royal Air Force officer. When did you actually apply for the RAF? I was, uh, I would have been 16, I guess, when I applied for a sixth form scholarship and a flying scholarship. So the way the scholarships used to work is you would go through the, the normal selection process that, uh, that you would be to apply to join to be a pilot. Um, and at the end of that, they would tell you if you were successful for 
either the sixth form scholarship or the flying scholarship. Sadly, I didn't get the sixth form scholarship, but I did get a flying scholarship, which was brilliant because at the time it gave 20 hours of flying in a, a single engine piston aeroplane towards PPL, which was great. So at 17, in fact, I think I was just 18, actually, I went uh, to Manston in Kent and, and flew a Cessna for 20 hours. It was a really good thing to be to be given by the Air Force and a, a great privilege. I was going to say, that's just really, really cool, especially coming from what you want to go on to do. So to then recognise you at that young age of your abilities is must, must have felt really good knowing that that's what you wanted to go on to do. Yeah, and it, well, the best bit about it, I thought, was that you'd been through most or part of the selection process. So when you went to apply to join for real, you kind of knew what to expect from those aspects because you'd been through it for the scholarship. So it was it was a slightly watered down version of the selection process for a scholarship, but it, you, know, you still did a lot of the main exercises that you would do then later for for main selection. Ah, brilliant. Okay, so it was it got a really nice insight, but also showed then that you were keen and interested. And did, I, I take it it, it, it went towards your application also when you went in and said oh, i've been awarded a scholarship yeah obviously they've got your name on record so they've seen how you performed at that first selection process and then how you performed on your scholarship as well that was all uh, very carefully monitored by the the blind training organizations and then that then came into your selection they, they had it on your file and they would look through and see what what how you performed and what you were like in your previous selection so yeah it did all add up so now you you've had to go and to become a Air crewman in, in the RAF, you have to become an officer first. Tell us a bit about the officer training. Yeah, that is, uh, I, you know, this is really bizarre. It's a six month course and I don't have any really strong memories about officer training. Really bizarre. Um, it was, I was 19. So it's just after my 19th birthday that I, I started officer training at Cranwell. Um, I was the youngest on the course. So I think there were 130 of us or something. I was the youngest wow. on the course as a, a direct entry uh, air crew or pilot entrant. Um, and the way it worked back in the day was depending on what time of year you started officer training, depending on how many people were on each course. So for example, I started in May when the universities hadn't graduated. So there weren't that many youngsters or uh, for that matter, pilot trainees on my course. I think there were only seven pilot candidates. Oh, Whereas wow. the following course, after universities had graduated a few months later, was full of pilot trainees. So uh, I was very lucky in that most of my course, a lot of my course were uh, what we call ex-rankers. So people who were already in the Royal Air Force as non-commissioned personnel who were going through their commissioning process. So they were going through officer training, having already served. And what that meant was you could then lean on their experience. You could really gain from what they'd learned and they could teach you all of the, the whys and wherefores of what it was like to be in the Royal Air Force. And they were brilliant mentors. And uh, I was very grateful. You know, I shared a room with a, a guy that was probably in his, I was 19, he was probably in his early 30s and he'd already served you know, uh, quite a few years in the Air Force and was commissioning. So he was brilliant. He took me under his wing and looked after me and helped me out and uh, put me on the straight and narrow. <laughs> brilliant. Because I was going to say, it must, it must be daunting when you're going in at 19 as well. And then to get there and find out that you're the youngest on, on the course also, it, it must, do you, do you feel like you've got something to prove to the rest of them? I, I didn't ever feel like I had something to prove. Uh, I, I was there to you know, get the qualification and to move on and, and try and realise the dream that I'd, I'd had since I was very young. So I didn't feel I had anything to prove to anybody else other than myself and that I wanted to do as best I could on the course um, and, and obviously learn what they were going to teach you because that was very relevant to what you were going to go and do in your career as a, as a commissioned officer. Brilliant. And then you, you passed out as a commissioned officer. How long was it till you took up a flying post? 
the way it worked then it was a six month flying course um now this was in the late 90s so at the time the the RAF was very short of pilots so there were quite a few pilots going through albeit not, not on my course because of the time of year but you know there were tens and tens of them on the following course so there were lots of uh, students going through flying training there weren't very long holds so holding periods are when there's not a space for you on a course you have to go and do another job as a, what's called a holding officer i was very fortunate my first job i only got a three-month hold so out of officer training i went straight to be the holding officer on what was then the harrier operational conversion unit oh wow and so 20 squadron yeah which was fantastic it was it was rf wittering which at the time had um, a frontline squadron and the conversion unit right next to stamford in uh, in rutland um so southern edge of lincolnshire amazing base with two harrier squadrons there were another two up the road at cottesmore you'd go into into stamford and it, it would just be it used to be called RAF Stanford because everyone from Wittering was there and you could just meet these Harrier pilots. And yeah, these are guys that I could really look up to Brilliant. working on the squadron was great. And yeah, I, I got lucky enough to have a, a backseat ride or two in a Harrier, which was very good. Yeah. So the first, the first RAF flight I took was in the back of a Harrier. That's so cool. And I'd say that spurred you on then a bit as well, knowing that you were going on to, to fast jets. Yeah, well, at the time, I didn't know that because I hadn't done my elementary flying training. So after that three month hold, then I went to uh, Church Fenton, as was. So it's now Leeds East Airport in, in Yorkshire and flew the Firefly, the Sling Slingsby Firefly, which was the elementary flying training course. And it was how well you performed on that course, which determined whether you were going to go and fly fast jets, rotary aircraft or multi-engine aircraft. So uh, at that point, I didn't know I was going to be a fast jet pilot. But you're right. It did definitely make me see even more that I wanted to achieve this and be a fast jet pilot. So, uh, yeah, work as hard as you possibly could on, the, on that course. And then hopefully, if you, if you if you cut the mustard, then you would end up flying fast jets. Brilliant. And did you, uh, did you ever cross your mind of maybe wanting to fly helicopters or, or transport? I'll be totally honest with you. It didn't because my, my ultimate goal... Um, while I was still taking very small steps to get there was, was to be in the red arrows. So, and you can't do that if you've been a, a, a rotary pilot or a multi-engine pilot. So my, my ultimate goal was to be in, in the red arrows and to achieve that, I had to be in fast jets. So, uh, luckily I got streamed to fast jets after the Firefly course and, and off I went to Linton on the Tucano. Brilliant. And then you, once you finished the Tucano, did you go on then to do a, a, a conversion course onto the Hawk at all? Yes, indeed. So I did the, it's about a 10 month course on the Tucano. Uh, I had a very short hold of about two, I think it was only two weeks actually between the the, the Tucano course and the Hawk course, uh, where I went and became the holding officer on the Battle of Brit Memorial flight. So that was fantastic as well. And then, and then I went across to RAF Valley and uh, started my Hawk training. So I actually got my wings on the Hawk. So up until around... Blimey, show me age now. Probably about fifteen years ago, if not before then, uh, you actually got wings on the Hawk at Valley as a fast jet pilot. But they brought it forward, so now students get their wings at the end of the basic flying training course. Brilliant. And did you find the Tucano was a good kind of introduction aircraft to, to come from, say, what you were flying a Cessna and then onto a fast jet such as the Hawk? I, I love the Tucano. I, it, it was a brilliant all-round aeroplane. You know, I, I flew one all the way to Malta and back. Um, it was, uh, you could take it up to 24,000 feet. It would fly at 300 knots. So it wasn't the fastest aeroplane in the world, but, um, it was fast enough to, to have some good fun at low level. It was reasonably good at aerobatics. So you could do inverted spinning in it. Um, the good thing about Tucano is you could actually land in very short, 
relatively short airfields. So somewhere where a hawk would be able to get, for example, somewhere like Oban in Scotland, you'd never get a hawk in there because the runway's not long enough, but you could put a Takano in there, it had reverse thrust and it had uh, with propeller and the turboprop, it actually had quite a lot of performance for getting in and out of those places. So I went to some places in a Takano where you, you wouldn't dream of taking a fast jet to. So I had a great time flying it and, and I really enjoyed the airplane. Your Hawk experience then was, how did you find that then uh, from the Tucano? Because like you said, you couldn't get into small strips and that, but was it equally as fun to fly and and kind of gave you an idea of what, what you were hoping to go on to afterwards? It, it certainly did. The Hawk is a is a sports car. It is definitely one of my my top five favorite airplanes to fly. It's, it does what you tell it to do. It's designed, the T1, which was what I trained on then, and then the Red Arrows fly. It's so simple. Um, it's reliable. It's relatively good performance it's not it's not blessed with masses of performance so the power to weight ratio isn't brilliant but for what we were using it for for basic or for advanced line training and for what the red arrows use it's a brilliant airplane the biggest thing during training is that you you see this air, aircraft for the first time so you go from your firefly to the Takano. you think wow this Takano is huge you know this is going to be such a different beast to fly then you go from the Takano to the hawk and it's even bigger and you think wow this is just incredible and then you go from the hawk to the tornado which is just another league the size of it is just out of this world in comparison um so that's the biggest thing about flight training is that each stage you know you're going up a gear in terms of speed but also just in terms of size and complexity of each of the aircraft so that was the biggest thing i found about the hawk is you get to it it's big you know you you're wearing g-suit you're wearing um an emergency suit at valley because it's you know, it's an island and you've got to fly over the sea a lot so you wear an emergency suit. So it all feels very relatively alien to start with it's pressurized so you can go up to 50,000 45,000 feet in a hawk um whereas you can't do that in Ticano. so quite a few differences with it and of course you haven't got a big propeller wearing on the front which is the other thing you know is in a hawk the visibility out the front is is quite a stubby nose so you really can't see a huge amount other than the instruments in front of you and then the horizon out the window so um yeah quite a big step from the Ticano to the hawk but it was such an enjoyable step you know you're, you're flying an airplane now you're at low level at 420 knots instead of 240 knots so it is a considerable jump in terms of what you're learning and the pace at which you're learning and of course you're then starting to introduce quite a few tactics into the course so not just about how do you fly an airplane how how, how do you learn to, to fly formation in a Ticano this is now right how do I learn to fly a hawk as a weapons platform in a tactical environment and that was the really interesting part of that whole course Brilliant. And it, it's, did you do any of that with the Tucano at all? Or was the Tucano just literally teaching you how to do engine management with it and then uh, aer aerobatics and getting you ready for, for the Hawk or did was everything weapon? We, the Tucano course was very much geared to just very small steps into you becoming a, a more experienced rounded uh, operator. You did a little bit of tactical flying, something called fighting wing at the time. They've introduced a few more tactical aspects to it. But at the time, it was you, you, would, you were being taught how to be a, a relatively simple formation leader and formation wingman, but not a huge amount of tactical learning. That all came a bit later on on the Hawk and then eventually the, the operational conversion unit well, after tactical weapons training onto, the, uh, onto the, the conversion unit on the front line. Going back to the size of the hawk, you were saying, being from Ireland, we we hadn't seen anything like that. So the first time I ever saw a hawk, we uh, were on a visit at RAF Valley, and um, it was huge. I thought I thought it was like a little sports car, and then I seen it up front, like you were saying, it, it was huge. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it is. It's, it, uh, but then it pales into insignificance when you put it next to to a tornado. <laughs> 
<laughs> as far as watching um, the Red Arrows documentary there as well, where they went across to the uh, US, and even as well, you, you, they're huge. And you see it sat beside an A400 or something, you think, nah, it is, it is really a sports car. <laughs> Uh, it's crazy, yeah, yeah. When you you, know, you fly, um, I can't I'm trying to think of the biggest thing. I flew probably a seven four seven on the in the Red Arrows on the wing of a seven four seven or the Vulcan, um, and it just yeah, the airplane becomes dwarfed. So you you came out then of your pilot train. You got your wings in the Hawk. Um, at what point did they tell you you were now becoming a creamy flight instructor? Uh, that was at that point. So what would what would happen at the time is you do the advanced flying training on uh, what was 208 Squadron. So the the learning how to fly the Hawk with a little bit of tactical flying. Then you would normally you get your wings, then you would progress to your attack weapons flying, still flying the T1. But there's also a point where if you get your wings, some people become what's known as creamy instructors. Now, the, the idea of creamies was um, it was those who had shown certain attributes throughout their training they were deemed suitable to go back and be instructors straight from their training. So uh, the, the cream on top of the milk is what I think uh, was, was, was what it was meant to signify, but uh, I certainly wouldn't put myself in that bracket. Um, but it was, it was the option was you could either stay at Valley and be a creamy instructor on the Hawk, or you could go back to the Tucano and be a creamy instructor on the Tucano, just depended on where the need was and perhaps what your, uh, the way they deemed your, possible instructional technique whether it would be better suited to the Tucano course or to the Hawk course and for me it was deemed that I would be better on the Tucano so off I went back to Linton on Ouse so having spent six months on Anglesey on the Hawk it was back to do the Central Flying School course at Linton on Ouse and and start learning to be an instructor on the Tucano. And did it take long to, to get used to the Tucano again? Uh, not at all. No, because you've by the time you finish the course, I think you've got about 140 hours of flying the Tucano, oh, and of wow. course that's all front seat. That's all. That's all in the front seat. Actually doing the flying. Then you go and put it in the Hawk. When you then go back to the Tucano, actually the the, the beauty of it was is that you've been, as I said before, you've been doing low level at 420 knots. Now you're back to 240 knots. So you, it it taught you or given you a little bit of extra capacity and thinking time. So that sort of step back to to go down a gear was actually quite useful for then learning to add the instructional aspects on top. And at the age of 22, how did you feel going into uh, into an instructor's role? Because that's that's still quite young. It was yeah. So I got creamed off when I was I was 21, and then qualified when I was 22, which which was brilliant because. I mentioned before about those university students who had graduated and a lot of those guys and girls uh, had already done some of their flying training through the university air squadrons, but they were going through the Tucano course and were similar age you know, because they'd been to university and I hadn't, they were about 21, 22, 23, and therefore you know, the same age as I was as an instructor. And it was great. You know, I've got some lifelong friends now who I taught to fly because I was at the same time at Linton, the same time when they were students, I was instructors. In fact, another a good story about that is when, I mentioned before about being in the air cadets at Biggin Hill. The guy I joined with, who was in my class at school, we joined the air cadets together, both wanted to be pilots. He actually went off to university while I joined the Air Force. Um, he then, he got a first in physics from Oxford and he was senior student on the UAS. He was <laughs> pretty switched on cookie. But he joined the Air Force to become a pilot and the timing worked out that I then taught him how to fly because wow. he became one of my students um and uh, that was quite a nice sort of rounded story as to the different paths people take either go to university or not and quite often that's a question i get asked is is it worth going to university and the answer is not necessarily you know the the skills some of the skills that the air force want you to have as a pilot nothing at university will teach you that but 
um, they might want you to have a little bit more maturity or be a little bit more rounded before you come in. So it, it all depends on the individual in, in true honesty. I um, hope so yeah, that was, sorry, carry on. <laughs> that, was, that was just a nice rounded story, but that was the, in answer to your question, it was being 22 as an instructor. It's quite a lot of responsibility and uh, you know, but, but, by the same token, you're you're engaging with people the same age as you, and I found that quite easy to, hopefully they would say the same. I found it quite easy to sort of impart my knowledge onto these these guys and girls that were really my peers and and in my age group. I love hearing the stories as well about people who haven't gone to university. I haven't gone to university myself, um, but my school it it was great, but it didn't really entertain the idea. I wanted to go into the Royal Navy at the time. And um, they didn't really entertain the idea of not going to to uni or college as, as we had in Ireland. Um, so it's great to hear someone like yourself who's had such a successful career, um, who didn't choose that that university path. And it's not for everyone, but if you want to do it, fair play. But it's great to hear someone like yourself um, who hasn't done it, who's, got, who's gotten so far in their career. Yeah, I'm, so my, my best friend, uh, who um, is now a group captain, actually, so he is, I think he's even younger than me, he, he was also a Tucano creamy, so he got creamed off just after me, was probably a year younger than me, um, he then uh, became a Harrier pilot, he was then the most recently the boss of 617 Squadron, so uh, yeah, he was a wing commander boss of 617 Squadron at, uh, well, it must have been just probably late thirties. Wow. Um, and he's now, he's now a group captain at, uh, at just 40. So, you know, he's doing very well. Um, but it, it just goes to show, as you say, you don't have to go to university to, to, to be able to succeed in some of the places that the Royal Air Force wants you to succeed. It's brilliant. Especially because, you know, you see like recruitment these days, everyone's like, Oh, you need a degree, this and that. And that's what I loved about the military as well was they, they didn't care. Once you could show the attributes to do the job and go and do it, they, they really did not mind. Exactly that. And and what is very good about the military is that there are so many opportunities, if, if time permits, and that's the, normally the biggest problem is that you're just too busy to fit anything in, but they will give you vocational qualifications while you're training. So I had opportunities to do degree courses, but trying to do that whilst, you know, uh, home home life balance uh, work work life balance is um is difficult at the best of times so trying to fit in a degree as well. I did start one, but uh, unfortunately I couldn't see it through with the commitments I had. I was going to say, going back to your career, I don't think you needed it, really. <laughs> <laughs> it would be nice to have, um, just to, to prove that it's not just all about flying. There are some vocational qualifications to be had as well. Right. So how long then were you, um, going back to the Tucano, how long then were you an instructor on that before you got told you're moving on to the Tornado? I did, I think it was three years as an instructor. There are varying levels of, of instructor. So you start off as what's known as a B2, which is almost like a probational level instructor. Then you become a B1 instructor after a certain number of months, which means you can do, you can teach different levels that so you can do different tests on students. And then the above average level is A2. And then the exceptional level is A1. There are very few A1 instructors, but uh, I managed to get my A2 instructor qualification, uh, which was um, hard work. You know, that was a very, very trying course because, you know, this is the central flying school. It's the oldest flying school in the world. They expect their instructors to be uh, of a certain pedigree and um, they wouldn't just give a willy nilly a2 out to anybody so um, it was quite hard work you know it was two weeks of intense flying teaching on the ground and then a, a big test at the end of it which was very daunting and i have to admit i didn't actually do very well at it um did all right in the air and the actual instructional aspects but the the ground school quiz that i got afterwards was i have to admit pretty dire but um luckily i scraped through it and <laughs> got my a2 and it was after that i then i still hadn't done the weapons course at this point 
Oh, okay. That second course I was talking about. So I had to go and do that. So I went back to Valley, uh, learnt, uh, refreshed on the Hawk. So get qualified again on the T1. But at this time, because the Air Force was so short of pilots and the, the flying training system was quite clogged, there were too many students, not enough um, flying training assets. We actually bought into the NATO flying training course out in Canada. Uh, so I uh, elected to go to Canada for about eight months and, and flew a more digital version of the Hawks to call the Hawk 115, which is a bit like the T2. So it's a, a sort of rudimentary early version of the, what the Air Force has now. This was a, a glass cockpit, multi-function, uh, hands-on throttling stick, um, quite a, a different league to the T1 where when I learned to fly the T1, it's different now, but they, they didn't even have a GPS. You did everything with your map and your stopwatch um, and what's known as TACAN. So uh, beacons from for navigating, military beacons for navigating. And you had to triangulate your position using two TACANs. It was quite hard work when you're doing seven miles a minute. But um, now they have a GPS bolted in, so it makes it a little bit easier. But the Hawk 115 out in Canada was very different. You know, the whole thing was head-up display, information screens down here and, and computers that told you what you were doing what weapon systems you had so it was it was much better in terms of relevance for moving on to a frontline platform in terms of cockpit management but not as diff probably not as difficult a course as it was at valley where you had nothing but your map and stopwatch but yeah eight months in canada which was which was fantastic it sounds like it's fantastic, especially getting the fly a different variant to what to what you're used to as well. So that's I, I always love that when I fly something different and it goes in the logbook. I'm like, well, hey, look at that, it's in there. I can put it on. Yeah, the it, 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 a different type. Yeah, and but the good thing about that course as well is because it was the NATO flying training course, there were students from all over NATO and and beyond NATO. In fact, I mean, there were some some Singaporean students, there were some Hungarian students, Italians, obviously Canadians. Some of the instructors were from Germany, so it was real. Uh, cross-section of of different caliber pilots around the world and and really good to meet lifelong friends again who you know who were doing the same course um and we're going to go back to their respective nations and fly different things and i have to ask because i've always wondered this question when you are navigating by map in a hawk you're going so fast it, it must be really tough to figure out oh just oh it's gone that lake the oh, it's gone again <laughs> Yeah, indeed. And there, there are definite techniques to low level navigation, be that in a in a Cessna 150 when you're doing 90 knots to a Takano where you're doing 240 knots to a Hawk where you're doing 420 to a Tornado where you're doing potentially 550 knots. You know, you, there are different techniques to how you do navigating. Um, and the, the thing to do is actually just pick big features for navigation. Um, fly to something that's got vertical extent where you can see it in the distance you can fly towards it you you trust your, your planning you trust where you are on the map look at the stopwatch and you know that in if you fly that if you fly the right speed on the right heading or the right track then you know you're going to be in in the ballpark when you get to your next turning point so it was all about technique and that was what we tried to, to elicit to the students was you, you learn the technique you don't learn to map read as you're flying at seven miles a minute it is impossible I did think that because I, I fly um, little Icarus C42 microlights at the moment. And uh, just just like navigating that, if you're going to the Isle of Wight, you could spot the Isle of Wight half an hour before you get to it. And then I always thought, when you hear of um, documentaries and stuff, that the Hawks don't have any GPS. And I always wondered, I was like, I couldn't imagine sitting there covering that speed going, oh, no, yeah, I think that's, no, it's gone now. That's <laughs> but but actually, your your mental dead reckoning, so your MDI, if you remember, you know, when you do it in your, in your Icarus or a Cessna, 
because you're going so slow, the wind affects you an awful lot more. You know, Percentage-wise, your, your drift, your ground speed, it changes a lot more at those sort of speeds than it does at 420 knots. You know, your your maximum drift at 420 knots is, is very different to your maximum drift at 90 knots or 70 knots. So actually, your mental dead reckoning becomes easier the faster you're going. But obviously, you're covering a lot more ground and you can get yourself into a pickle a lot quicker than you would at 70 knots or 90 knots. That's, that's, that's the real thing to, to come to grips with. And did you find when on the tornado, did you find it much, any, say, any harder to get your head around because you're doing a quicker speed than the Hawk and it's a bigger aircraft? Did you, did you find it more difficult to get your head around at all? or Not really. The thing, the thing when you go to the front line is that now you do have these navigation systems. You know, in a tornado, you've actually got a navigator in the back as well who uh, is there monitoring all the systems as well. You've got much, many, many more things to think about. So now the airplane you're flying is a weapons platform. Your job is to, whether if you're a ground attack pilot, your job is to get a bomb on a target at a certain time. You know, that is your job. Um, you use the airplane to make that happen. If you're an air defense pilot, you use your airplane to defend a, defend a piece of airspace or to defend another asset. The airplane is not about accurate flying per se anymore. It's about accurate prosecution of the mission. Mm. And that's, that's, that's the big step change when it comes to getting to the front line and flying that front line type so yes it is a very different mindset in terms of you're still low level at 420 knots in a tornado but it's a very different job you're doing now you know you're not you're not just getting from a to b you're getting from a to b for a reason brilliant and how long were you on the tornado then before you became a conversion um was it was a conversion instructor you weren't on it uh, that was uh let me think about this i think the course for the tornado was about six months. So January 2005 to yeah, July 2005. Um, that was the conversion course. So you, you do your initial learn how to fly the airplane with a few, again, with a few tactics thrown in uh, on a conversion course. At the end of that, you become what's known as limited combat ready. That was certainly with the tornado F3 that I flew, the, the, the air defense variant. Then when you go to the squadron, you do another bit of a workup which is your frontline conversion workup. And at the end of that, you're assessed as being combat ready if you pass that conversion. Right. So I'd spent, uh, I'd probably spent a year on the squadron as a combat ready pilot uh, before I then became a combat instructor. Okay. And then um, was, was it the instructor course any different to the instructor courses that you'd done already? Well, there wasn't really a course, to be honest with you. It All was right. just a case of you, you, you have been an instructor in the past, so you were a qualified instructor. Uh, you are now frontline. You've got enough experience as a, a four-ship leader. You've got enough experience to put a junior navigator in the back and teach them how we do it on the front line. That was, that was the idea of being a combat instructor. So it, it wasn't, there, was no, there was no set qualification or a course to achieve a qualification because I was already a qualified flying instructor. I had that instructor tick. I could then teach on the front line to these, these junior navigators. And while you were doing in the tornado instruction, were you, was that like a secondary duty? Were you still doing um, QRA or anything like that? Absolutely. Yeah. No, it was all part of frontline life. So, you know, one day you might be doing QRA. The next day you were teaching a navigator. The next day you're preparing for an exercise. Then you'd be uh, the next month you're down in the Falkland Islands or, or in Europe or the Middle East or America on exercise. So, yeah, it was it was quite a busy time on the front line. And um, I know the pace is no different today on the, the Typhoon and Lightning Squadron. You know, the guys and girls are very, very busy. Did you deploy anywhere with the uh, tornadoes at all? I didn't deploy in the sense of go out to any theatre uh, where there were hostile action just because the, the F3 was air defence and 
at the time, so we're talking now 2005 to 2007, there was no call for the F3 to be in theatre. Uh, what it did do, though, the primary role was air defence of the UK and the Falkland Islands. So you, know, you were on the force, was at readiness 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And that that is what the force primary role was, to be UK and Falkland Islands air defence. I did an awful lot of that. Um, and then I did a lot of exercises, you know, India, Hungary, Denmark, Belgium, uh, was meant to be in the States, was meant to be in the UAE, but they're, they're long stories. <laughs> Men, I didn't quite get there. Um, but yeah, so I did a lot, some good exercises, but primarily it was all about air defence of the UK. Right, and that, 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 that classified as a um, combat role, more or less, because I know to get into Red Arrows, you had to have at least one uh, tour of duty under your belt. Uh, is, is that correct? Yeah, well, people often think a tour of duty means, you know, be deployed to a to a theatre. Actually, that's not the case. You know, you just have to have been on the front line. Um, now, the, at the time, the Tornado F3 was declared as a part of the NATO readiness force. So it was a frontline unit. You know, I was on a frontline squadron. We had a frontline role in their defence. So, yeah, I had, I had completed a frontline tour. I just hadn't been deployed to uh, anywhere where it was uh, rather hostile. And because... Uh, how long were you, did you do on the tornado in, in, in total? In total, uh, it was probably about two and a half years. Uh, right. Yeah, so I, I joined in sort of January 2005 and I, I went to the Red Arrows in July 2007. So uh, two, and a, two and a half years, I'd say, was, was my total time on the tornado. I didn't do a, a huge amount of flying in it. I think I only got around just under 500 hours. So by you know, there are some guys out there who've got 4,000 hours in the Tornado F3. So it certainly wasn't anywhere near that. But in two and a half years, that's yeah, it was quite a good, a good stat. I had quite a few qualifications on the on the jet uh, before I then went across to to be in the Red Arrows. I think that's funny. You say I haven't got much flying on 500 hours and nearly eight years of having a license. I'm just coming up on 200 hours. <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know, this is where I find myself very fortunate being a military pilot. I've got a lot of friends who are, are PPL holders. Uh, it's all self-funded flying. It's an expensive hobby, isn't it? I mean, it's, it is ridiculous. And it's not just the expense. It's the, you're quite limited when you're a PPL holder in what you can do. You know, it has to be a pretty nice day for you to go and fly it. Yeah. You've got to find someone who's got a, an airplane you can hire. Um, there's obviously a lot of cost in that. It's um, to keep the thing current costs enough money to then to, to add on top things you want to do with the license. You know, just it, the bills just rack up and up and up. So I'm very fortunate to have had all that experience in the military to give me to give me the flight. And then, so you've, you've done your 500 hours um, and your two and a half years and you're thinking, what point now is your brain starting to think, I want a red flight suit? <laughs> well, to be honest with you, yeah, I mean, it, it had been since I was three years old that I wanted to be in a red flight suit. So it had gone way, way back. Um, my whole time as being an instructor on the Takano, you know, this was something that I uh, wanted to achieve. You know, I was telling my bosses that I yeah, really wanted to be in the Red Arrows when when I grew up. Um, and uh, you know, that was something that I'd always put on my appraisal every year. You know, so on the front line, it, I made it known to my boss, who incidentally was an ex-Red Arrow, uh, you know, I want to be, I want to be in the Red Arrows, and he he was my almost my mentor and champion, if you like, for for steering me down the what what I should do on the front line and when I should apply and what I should do. So, um, yeah, very grateful to him. Brilliant. And was did you find it all when you said it to people? Anyone kind of snubbed you out over it, or were, was everyone quite supportive? Because you hear about people um, kind of coming out for the Marines and stuff who want to go for SES and SBS selection, and when they say it to their commanding officers or their sergeants, they they get laughed at and it's like oh i'll see you back in a week did you find any of that when you were coming through 
I, I didn't personally experience any of that, but the, at the, probably in the late 90s and 2000s, the, the Red Arrows didn't have the best reputation uh, within the Royal Air Force. You know, they, they weren't viewed in a very good light uh, by, by quite a few people. Now, I personally didn't experience it, but, but that's, that was um, uh, personally, I think, pretty uh, misinformed. You know, the reputation was misinformed, I think. Um, but then when I said I wanted to do it, I didn't get any stick from anybody for wanting to do it. Cause I, I think secretly there were a lot of guys that wanted to do it as well, but just didn't, didn't want to stick their head above the parapet and, and say they were going to do it. If you know what I mean? So um, yeah, I think I, I didn't personally experience it, but I know certainly some guys did. And what's the application process for the Red Arrows? Like talk, talk us through what, what you had to do from start till before you got told, yes, you're, you're in on the team. Well, you, the criteria you need to, achieve before you can even think about applying so uh, 1500 hours flying um fast jet is the really the bottom line uh, but instruction hours on the Takano counted because it was instructional and you're flying you know single seat-esque flying uh, but you also get a lot of experience in in different uh, aspects of aviation if you like um so 1500 hours of flying assessed as above average uh completed a frontline tour and be a flight lieutenant so those four things, once you've achieved all those, then you can apply to join. Now, this is back in the day. So mid 2000s, um, I probably got a couple of thousand hours and it was, you know, it was time for me to apply nowadays to get that sort of level of flying takes quite a bit longer just because of the, the nature of how the, the Royal Air Force is, is made up now. And a lot of simulator flying, you know, in the, in the Typhoon and the, in the F-35, a lot of it is now simulator based. So getting to that hours level is becoming increasingly more difficult um the other thing is if you've got 1500 hours you're above average and you've done a frontline tour quite likely you're on the cusp of promotion to squadron leader at which point you're ineligible to apply so a lot of guys a lot of guys and, and girls now are they're finding a difficult decision in that do they do they strive for promotion and progress further up the, the rank structure or do they give it their shot to join the Red Arrows? And that's that's becoming more and more popular, uh, or certainly more prevalent in the last few years that I was in the involved in the process. Okay, so um, I, I didn't know that now. Because I, 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 I know yourself, you reached the um, the rank of squadron leader. So I, I didn't know that, obviously, you were in before um, you, you reached that. Um, so I, I didn't realise that you could you weren't allowed to apply once you, once you reached Yeah, it's, it's a junior officer application so you have to be a junior officer so the rank of either flying officer or flight lieutenant now it's it's pretty impossible nowadays to be a flying officer and Aris pilot I, I i can't even see how you would be able to do it with the way that the the rank structure works um but i'd, I'd been a flying officer i finished my entire instructional tour and i'd gone to canada as a flying officer so you know back in the day it was possible to get over a thousand hours as a pilot officer flying officer so it might have been feasible just to have been a flying officer at Aris pilot, but um, certainly now impossible. So really the rank of flight lieutenant, as soon as you get that squadron leader post, then you're no longer eligible to apply. Wow. Yeah. I think that, that's just blown my mind now that has. <laughs> but you'll see, you will see in the team, there are a lot of squadron leaders because the way that the promotion process works is that once you are in the team, you're still eligible to be read for promotion. So if you, on the back of your last report, you could get promoted even though you've now been selected for the team, which is why I think there are three squadron leaders in the current Red Arrows team, uh, apart from Red One. I think there are three other squadron leaders. And that, in fact, there's four. Um, and that's because they've been promoted while they have already been selected for the team. 
That's cool. That's very, very cool. That, that, that's obviously what happened to yourself then, I take it. Uh, it did. Well, I actually got promoted as I was leaving the team. So I did three years in the team as a flight lieutenant. I left on promotion. So I went to a, a desk job on promotion. So um, for my three first three years in the team, I was actually uh, a flight lieutenant. Okay, brilliant. And going back, going back to your application process, how, how long was it from, from start to, to finish? When, when you applied, how long was it before you were told? Ooh, yes, I you think about this. I think, I think the way it worked when I was doing it was they would send um, a signal, a signal being, you know, a, a very antiquated method of communication in the military where um, through the communication center, you'd send out this signal and um, the red arrows would send it out to every station and say, anybody who wants to apply, here are the criteria, send your application back via, via signal. Now, no one ever sends signals. So I think that was the first test was to see if you could actually send a signal or not. Um, so apply via signal with your hours, um, when you were, uh, your seniority and rank was and all those sort of things. Um, so applied, I think that was in around the February time. So February, 2007, that process then kicked off, um, the shortlist was in April. So a couple of months later, shortlist being the sort of down selected group of applicants. So there are normally around 30 a year that apply to join the team. Um, from those 30, the, the sifting process, if you like, is done by the pilots on the team. So red one will read every applicant's flying record from day one of flying training to present day frontline report and, and look at their strengths and weaknesses and work out, in his mind, who, where his strengths and weaknesses lie, he will then precede all of those to the team pilots. Now, every single applicant, all 30 of them, it, we have a big meeting and sit down for hours. And it is quite literally hours. Talk about all these candidates. It's, it's tried where hardest to be done anonymously so that you aren't, you know, favorite, favoritizing a friend or, um, somebody, you know, you know, it's done based on what his report says, what he's done, what his attributes are. And then you, I say his, his or hers. Um, and of course, uh, from you can't take 30 to take them to the next stage of selection. So the down selection process is to, is to choose nine. And that becomes what is known as the shortlist. Those nine shortlist pilots then go away for a week long selection process in normally in the Mediterranean training camp, which was used to be in Cyprus. Uh, most recently has been in Greece. Because I was going to say, I think you you did um, Danger Men, uh, I think it was the Danger Men series uh, based on the Red Arrows for your first one. And I think you guys were in Aquatiri uh, for it. Uh, Danger Men was, yes, that was my first training camp. So that's when I was in the team. I was, uh, I'd been selected. I'd already joined the team and it was the work up to my first year as, as Red 3. That was uh, when Danger Men was filmed. Do you have any idea that you were going, your whole process was going to be filmed and aired to the world when you were applying? Well, that, that bit wasn't. So it was the year before Danger Men. So it would have been 2006. That's when the BBC filmed the entire selection process. So luckily I got away with that. I didn't get that bit filmed. I just got the training once I was already selected. Because I think for the selection, I think having a, a camera crew there would have been that sort of extra bit of added pressure that would have been a real pain in the backside if i'm honest but uh, no i didn't have it for the selection i just had it for the training that's uh yeah i was gonna say because it would really add because you've, you've gone in for interviews and there's a guy standing in the, in the corner with a bbc camera filming it absolutely everything it would really put a put the pressure on especially when you're trying to get a coveted slot in, in the red arrows absolutely yeah um so how long was it then when you 
took the posting. So you you've gone out to Acretary. You've you've I, I think was your uh, selection or your shortlist in Acretary? Yes, it was. It was in April two thousand and seven. April 2007. And then when you got back, they, you know, they didn't let on at the end of that week long selection. There was no letting on as to how well you'd done. It was right off you go back to your frontline unit and um, we'll, we'll get in touch with how successful or not you've been. Um, and, and off we went, you know, just not knowing how it performed. You get no feedback whatsoever. Um, so then worth mentioning what, what the selection process involves. Now the week in that criteria or in, in Greece as has been recently is is quite structured and the idea is that you see you see the whole spectrum of somebody's personality because you know you put them in position in situations where they might not feel comfortable socially they you put them in positions of flying in the back of an airplane three times a day where they're going to be tired you know they, they're going to be under the spotlight they're going to be tired you're going to put them through quite a stressful flying test where you test their hands and feet as in flying in close formation doing aerobatics which is something they've never done before um, you put, put them in front of an interview board of three senior officers who just fire nasty questions at them. You actually do some media training where you, you stand in front of a camera and the, the media officer will throw very nasty sort of journalistic type questions at you and, and try and come up with the most reasoned answer without um, trying to put your foot in things. Uh, they're the sort of things that you would get involved with. And then of course, there's a very much a social aspect to it as well, because you've got to get to know these people socially because the team, it's such a small close knit team it has to work well on a social level as well as a as a hands and feet purely flying level um, and that is done through a various events that happen throughout that shortlist week just to get to know the guys and girls just from as i said before the whole spectrum of their personality and that is very important you know if you're you're going to be in the team with one of these people and the chances are some days in the summer you're you're spending 16 hours a day together so you just got to get on for the team to better function properly so choosing the right people is important from a practical aspect in flying the airplane but also from that personal aspect of, of gelling as a team and does did the whole team get a get a say in like you were saying that everyone sits down goes through the applications but does the whole team get a say then after the shortlist of of who's going to join who's who's the ne next newbie's going to be yeah that, that is the beauty of the red arrows and, and why it's worked so well over the last 55 years is is it it's a self-selecting team in the military you don't normally have the luxury of choosing your own people you know people get posted in posted out the special forces is similar in that they they can choose the people they want based on performance on the selection and that's the same in the military in the red arrows is that the pilots in the team have the vote as to who will join the team it does have to be sanctioned by some senior officers but generally they they would look at each candidate's merits based on what the team have chosen um and i think it's you know certainly in, in my 10 years um although how i got in i don't know but in, in my 10 years uh it, i think it's worked very well and and as i say it's a proven system that has worked for 55 plus years and if it ain't broke don't fix it did it change at all where, where over over the 10 years you were with the reds that selection process the yeah. what we call the shortlist process no it didn't no there were there were a couple of things that changed um just based on not being in cyprus you know cyprus was good because it was a military camp there were some it lent itself very well to some of those aspects of arranging events whereas if you're doing it uh, in a greek airbase and you know it's staying in civilian accommodation it doesn't work quite as well so there were a couple of things that changed but i mean they were minor the actual process was identical every year and then uh, I don't I don't know how they do it this year. I guess they have to do it on Zoom or something. 
I was going to say, yeah, yeah, they're probably sat like this at the moment now doing it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> flying, a flying test on simulators on uh, on DCS or something. Yeah, work from home, virtual red arrows flying. <laughs> <laughs> so say, with the amount of air shows getting cancelled, they might actually end up like that. Oh, yeah, then, yeah, it's crazy. So when you get through the shortlist, uh, how did you find out that you were getting onto the red arrows? Yeah, that's a, that is a good question. I was quite bizarrely at the time so again 2007 there were quite a few frontline um squadrons still the f3 was still going the gr4 the harrier i think the jaguar had just disbanded um but there, you know there's still a lot of frontline squadrons but it just so happened that on my shortlist of nine people three of us were from the same squadron so uh and it just so happened that it was the same boss who i mentioned earlier who was an ex-red arrow um so i think he'd sort of suggested you know come on go put the application in there's no harm in trying kind of thing anyway so three of us on uh, from the same squadron we got back to the squadron straight back to work and uh, the boss was away um overseas uh, but what he did is that when the results came through it was the squadron boss who had got it from the station commander we each had to sit individually in, a, in an office completely isolated wait for the phone to ring pick it up speak to the boss we weren't allowed to leave the office till all three of us had had the result unfortunately the other two didn't get in but i did so coming out of the room and having been told you know and i just it's that really awkward moment of you know i'm absolutely elated here i've just got my dream job but i don't want to have this massive grin on my face because i know these other two haven't and you know that was, that was quite hard to manage to be honest um but that happened I think we got back from the shortlist on the Tuesday and it was the Friday afternoon we got the results. So it was oh, wow, quite quick. Quite quick. Quite quick. And then what was then interesting is that we were actually going on an exercise at uh, four o'clock the following morning. So as I said, it was a Friday night. Happy hours in the bar were normally good on a Friday night anyway, but this one was particularly good with the amount of champagne I, I was buying and drinking. Um, and then we had to get up to get at four o'clock to get on a bus from Lucas to Bryce Norton, which was, yeah, so Scotland down to... Oxfordshire it was a long way in a bus to then jump on a I think it was a TriStar or a VC10 to then fly out on this exercise so that was quite hard work but you know what I wouldn't, I wouldn't have given it up for the world that was uh, the, the best hangover ever I think oh, 100% you'd suffer it just for that news wouldn't you yeah absolutely and then how long was it from because you went on exercise then how long was it from picking up that phone getting told you're successful to actually joining the the Red Arrows yeah, so what happened there was we got went out. It was a month long exercise in Denmark. We were going on, so when it did the did the exercise, it was actually a, a course, the tactical leadership program course, which uh, which was great because it was it gave you a sort of NATO qualification in tactical leadership, which was very good. So very enjoyable flying with a load of European countries and Americans. Uh, did the course, got home. I did another probably six weeks on the squadron, and then uh, I had to go back to Valley to learn how to fly the Hawk again. And then it was over to Scampton to uh, to join the team. I didn't realise you get sent back to Valley to learn how to fly. I thought you just had to learn how to fly it again while on the job. <laughs> no, well, that that Valley doesn't have the Hawk T1 anymore. They just have the Hawk T2. So back in the day, it was you'd go to Valley and relearn it. But now um, the ground school is done at Valley and the simulators at Valley. But I think the, the flying's done at Leeming on the T1. Or it, you know, there is the facility to do it in-house with the instructors from the Central Flying School. If uh, I don't think that's being done at the moment, certainly. In fact, the team hasn't changed for a while, so I don't know how it's working. That's, um, yeah, it's pre pretty intense then, just, just to get to the Red Arrows before you can even start training. 
Yeah, well, actually, it was quite a short course. I think it was 10 hours on the Hawk just to get oh. back in the cockpit, um, learn, get your instrument rating, just learn the, 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 the systems again through ground school, bit of simulator stuff, um, and then just get, get your first pilot qualification renewed in 10 hours, and then back off you go to Lincolnshire and, and join the team. What was good about that, though, is that you got to shadow the team for the back end of the season. So you'd go away in the back seat of... The, the, the guys you'd sit in the back of public displays because the only people that are allowed to sit in the back of a public display are future pilots or supervisors okay was, um, <clears> seen, <throat> was it i think on the last documentary i think it might have been a practice display actually uh commander chris hadfield um joined the the guys and i know you guys took um lewis hamilton and david coolard for a, a spin but i think they were all practice stuff yeah exactly if it's a practice you can take passengers and in fact um most of the practices when I was in the team at Scampton every day there were passengers coming flying and the idea of that is that they are prospective candidates so these are pilots that are uh, looking at joining the team and they're coming to have an insight on what it's like so you know, they were eligible or um, they were allowed to come and fly so a lot of them did and it was great to have them it's great cool. you get the opportunity to fly in, in a red hawk you have, you have to say yes to it don't you it's... <laughs> absolutely yeah it's like yeah I did it my first my first go in the back of a red jet was in I think it was 2003. Um, I was just coming to the end of my, yeah, it was towards the end of my time as an instructor at Linton on Ouse. Um, so I, went, I just phoned the team up and said, look, at some point in the future, I'd, I'd like to join. Can I come and have a go? And I said, yeah, come down. So I spent the day flying in the back of, uh, of the red jets. It was just, uh, just jaw dropping. And I, because it's so different to what you're doing as an instructor at Tucano compared to them flying so close and so low and, and it just, absolutely eye-opening and oh i caught the bug even more after that because i was gonna say it must seem like really really close because when you fly loose formation with your mates it looks close when your red arrow's close it has to be it must look like you can just reach out and, and touch them uh, to be honest the references on the hawk that you flew at valley weren't too far from from the references to the red arrows fly now of course the idea of that is you need to be close because if you're going through cloud as a three ship you know, thick, dense cloud is actually quite difficult to see your leader. So you need to be tight in on the references to be able to keep keep him in sight because you're not looking at your instruments, you're trusting him on his instruments. So you need to be quite close. So the, the idea of close formation was taught anyway. You just took it up a gear with the red arrows and did it, you know, aerobatics and, and with nine aeroplanes. Wow, it's, it's, still, it's still amazing when you, when you talk about it like that. It's just like there is nine jets, really close formation, uh, just casually doing aerobatics, and that's a day job. <laughs> it doesn't start like that, it has to be said. You start off with small formations, and then the, you get, the more proficient you become and, and the less movement and errors there are in your position, then you, you add more and more airplanes to it. So it's not just day one off you go as a nine ship and uh, go upside down. It starts with sort of twos and threes and fours and then just gets bigger and bigger. Your first training day, even though you're not in the red suit yet, but you're in a Red Hawk, is there, does, does it feel a little bit special knowing that you've, regardless of anything that happens in the world, you've flown a Red Arrows Hawk? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's a good question because the very first training day, you know, you'd expect on when you were doing converting to a new type or something, you'd have an instructor with you. But day one on the Reds is, no, no, you can fly the Hawk because you've just been to Valley and got your Hawk while, so off you go. We're going to go and do some three or four ship looping and rolling so that that is day one um and interestingly it, the way it worked is that it was the end of the season when we started our training so the season had finished uh, but the team was going on a tour of uh 
Middle East, Far East. So we only had a little bit of time in between finishing the season to then going on tour to squeeze in some training. Um, uh, Red One needed some leave. So he went on leave for two weeks, which meant the executive officer, who at the time was Red Eight, he, he led me and my two uh, newbie buddies um, in close formation aerobatics. So he was our teacher for two weeks before Red One then came back. We did a little bit on his wing and then we stopped training and went with the team um, all the way to Malaysia and back. Wow. That Which was... Cool. Uh, it was because we had no responsibility. You know, I was, I was quite literally a bag carrier. My, my job was bags. So when we got to hotels, I had to make sure everyone's bag went to the right room and that they had all their kit. So I was a bag carrier for the Red Arrows. And you know what? It, it sounds really derogatory, but you know what? I don't care. It's the best job yeah. in the world coming up. You know, I'm in Malaysia. If I have to put 10 bags in 10 bedrooms, you know, so be it. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite happy to do that. If I got a phone call to say after Red Arrows tomorrow morning, you come and carry your bags. I couldn't wait to put that in the CV. I'd be there in the light. Absolutely. <laughs> so then when you do, so you you do your training, obviously you add more and more jets in. It then comes to Public Display Authority Day or PDA Day. What is that like? Because even though you've done all these formations, you've, you've, you've basically done everything. You're not going to do anything new on PDA Day. Is there still that element of, of nerves and, and, and excitement that's there? definite nerves and the only like you say you trained you know you're training three times a day five days a week you're doing a lot of training um of that display and it's a set routine so there's apart from the weather there, there are very few variables in what you're doing um so the biggest fear is letting the team down you know on, when the eye when the spotlight is on the team for pda your biggest fear is actually that is the most important crowd you're going to display to that year because if you don't perform to your best on that day and the team don't get granted public display authority, then you've let the team down. So that was that was the fear. That's where the butterflies came from. Was that you are, you are performing to the most important crowd of the entire year. It might only be one person, but it is the most important crowd. So that's that's where the the apprehension, I, or I would say, came from in in terms of PDA. But what a proud moment though, getting told that you've passed it by a senior officer, and then. It is quite literally right. Well done, you've passed. Go and get your red suit on, and that happened straight away. Glass of champagne into red suits, and then the weirdest thing about it is that up till now, when you've been flying aeroplanes in the air force, you've only ever worn a green flying suit, and now you strap into a flying suit in a red, uh, flying jet in a red flying suit. It just feels completely alien. You, know, you look down and it's just red, and it just it really catches you for the first. I think it was sort of the first three or four trips. It was. I found it quite difficult to adjust to looking down and seeing my legs that are now red instead of green. And, and it was just very bizarre. It, it quite a, a minor point, but it was just the, something that stood out in my memory as what, what was different about being a PDA red Irish pilot to being a trainee red Irish pilot. It must feel good as well. Like you've got your red suit on to climb into the red jet knowing that you are officially a red arrows at that stage. Yeah. And of course they've, they've put your name on the jet by that point as well. So, you know, you, you're in your, like you say, your red suit that's got your embroidered name on red arrows crest on your arm, union Jack over your right uh, breast here. And then you're climbing into a jet with your name on. I mean, that is, that is definitely a, a, a pride making moment for, from me having wanted to do it for 20 something years. You know, that is, that is the, uh, the definite tick in the box to, to achieve. From watching Danger Men as well, you had a quite an amazing first year because I think you guys did one show, which all your family decided they wanted to come and watch as well. Um, and then as soon as you were done that, ended up going straight across the Atlantic to uh, to the states. We did, yeah, we did. We did the 
South End Air Show, where, as was depicted in the documentary, all my family were there. Um, we'd actually done a couple of other shows as well, but um, for, for TV, they did they didn't include that bit. Uh, so we did a few shows, and then yeah, up up sticks flew across the Atlantic um, to display Canada, and then down the eastern coast of the US, which was brilliant. What an experience! You know, taking a a thirty something year old single engine jet across the Atlantic up through Iceland, Greenland, Northern Canada. And then down was it's the scenery is stunning but then to go and display in front of massive crowds in in the uh, united states you know, it was incredible I'd, at that point i'd never actually been to the states oh wow. so i'd lived in canada for eight months so i'd been i'd seen canada and i'd lived canada but i'd never actually set foot in the united states so the first time i ever got to the states was in a red hawk which was uh, which was great actually it was a good stat um and we got all the way down to new york and we displayed in New York Harbor, which hasn't been done since and, and had never been done before. So it wasn't in you know downtown Manhattan, albeit we did fly there after the show. But, um, you know, we, it was a place called South Beach. So it was only a few miles away from Manhattan. So you could see in the background, you could see the skyline of Manhattan as you're displaying. And it was, yeah, what an incredible memory. And then after the show, flying past the Statue of Liberty at, at very low level. Oh, wow. And then down past the Empire State Building at very low level. And that was, uh, yeah. I definitely want to remember what a first year to be on, be on the team because then you guys also i know i know it's not really a competition but you guys were, were pitched against the thunderbirds blue angels and the snowbirds um <laughs> you had that added pressure of we need to well that, that, that was uh, again that was all for television it didn't really work that way but um there was a there was a sunset show that is depicted in the documentary that they asked if we would do it because we we traveled the furthest so oh, would we would we be the uh, would we be the sunset act for the sort of um, dignitaries? So we had we didn't win a competition just because we travelled the furthest and they, and they weren't probably going to have the red arrows back there for certainly a long time. Would we take the honour of doing the sunset show for the dignitaries, which we did? And I can I remember that so well. If people ask me which is my favourite display, that one is in my top three. Just because um, going back to when I trained in Canada, um, a place called Cold Lake, one of the guys that was on the course with me was a Canadian guy called Marco Rosconi. He then went to be um, a Hornet pilot in the Canadian Air Force, but then he joined the Snowbirds. And when we went to the Quebec Air Show in 2008, he was Snowbird 4 and I was Red 3. So I got to fly in his tutor during one of their displays. Wow. And that sunset display that is depicted in Danger Men, he was in my backseat. So wow. not only are the, the, the environmentals, the conditions were perfect there was not a breath of wind you know the smoke was lingering the sun was huge as it was setting and i've got my mate in the back who i trained with you know four years earlier um, in canada who i'd flown with the day before in his display it was just everything came together it was just one of those perfect days and perfect displays that that i will remember forever and definitely in my top three of memorable displays it's one of them where you can't wipe the smile off when you land, isn't it? Oh, God, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Even think about it now. And and quite often I, I've got the video um, from 2008. We, we had an end-of-season video made every year, and that features in there. And, you know, it still brings back such great, vivid memories. How did you find flying with the Snowbirds? Like, was it massively different to what you were used to with the Red Arrows? Or uh, Their display is very pretty similar, actually. They are um, nine aircraft uh, probably a little bit slower than the hawk but um you know it was at the time the tutor uh, was there or just before the hawk came in over there it was their um primary jet trainer so in terms of the role it performed a bit like a jet provost i suppose so side by side seating uh, the, the thing i found the strangest about that airplane was just the 
strapping into the ejection seat. It just seemed so convoluted and there were so many clips and straps and zips and it just seemed to take forever. And I remember getting the safety brief thinking, oh, I don't have to get out of this in a hurry because <laughs> there are just clips everywhere. Um, but then when you get in the aeroplane, you know, I was just uh, in awe of what those guys were doing because they do the aeroplane flies very differently to the hawks, so they do things very differently. They, for example, you see a lot of photos of the snowbirds in line abreast, where they're directly you know, wingtip to wingtip in a straight line, all nine aeroplanes, and they do that so well. You can't do that in a hawk because it's got a swept wing. Yeah, the wing's behind you, so it's very difficult to fly line abreast in a hawk. The, the, the references to line up for line abreast formation are very difficult, whereas in a snowbird, you've got perfect reference, which is the leading edge of your wing, which you're looking out, because you sat right on top of it so they do line of breast formation very well and you know sitting in the middle of that as a snowbird four was wow this is this is just fantastic so it was just great to experience another team doing it so well brilliant i was gonna say because it must being it must be interesting to see that because being in the red arrows you you've got your own style of doing things you got everything that you know um how to do so it must be great to, to look at other teams and say um yeah that, that's how they do that or even just the experience like you said experiencing wing to wing like looking right and seeing a load of snowbirds looking left seeing a load of snowbirds and yeah exactly you can't can never get the experience yeah and and i've taken that away in in the last few years i've been very fortunate to have worked with certainly a lot of the european teams and thunderbirds blue angels uh, when they visited the uk uh, and i've been over to the states for conferences as well and it's quite good to get everyone's heads together to talk about best practice and to talk about right what what have you learned from this maneuver you tried and um is there anything you would suggest we didn't do because of this happened or, you know so it's it's very good to have a community that is willing to engage and willing to share those stories and 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 offer some form of expertise in how maybe not to do it or how best to do it or however it might be so um i've been very fortunate in that regard to have to have worked with a lot of the teams um i'm also on the a board member of the european air show council and in fact next this time next week it's thursday today this time next week i'm uh, uh chairing a, a gathering online of all of the european display teams wow. where we'll do exactly that we'll sit and talk about how have we how have the teams trained during covid what are the biggest risks when we get back to flying performances um and, and what you know there might be a team that's got one measure in place that another team hadn't thought of and that they can take on board so again it's all about best practice and and sharing wealth of experience brilliant that that's 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 really really cool as to say that you can do that and you're part of that and everything that that's amazing I do feel very fortunate and uh, yeah, you know, I've held display pilots in all for, for most of my life and now to be um, part of a community in which they're so openly engaged and talking and sharing stories is, is really the way forward. Yeah, it's, it's, it's where we should be. We get a we get a Michael magazine every month through the door, uh, and there's a bit in it uh, like you say, open it a bit called say it's in the middle called safety, and um, it's just people talking about their experiences. Uh, so people like myself who haven't touched wood had an accident around like that can learn from other people's mistakes. So it's great to see it from that perspective. Yeah, and and there's a key thing in in every RAF safety magazine or you know flyer magazine or pilot magazine or the magazines you're talking about. It's it's a section normally called I learned about flying from that, and that is. They are the stories you need to just read uh, because it might stop you having the same thing. Yeah. And that's very important. I always say every time I take off, every day is a school day. It's yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it still is. Yeah, absolutely. So Mike, actually staying on to, to accidents, you had quite a 
horrific one, really, uh, where you had to eject out of a hawk. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that was um, March 2010. So by now, it's my third year in the team. I've been very fortunate to have been picked to be in the synchro pair. So in 2009, I was synchro number two, is red seven. And then in 2010, I was the synchro leader. That's the sort of natural progression. A year as wingman and then third year as leader. So I became synchro pair leader. We'd done most of our work up. You know, we were up to nine ship standard as the team and we were deploying over to Cyprus. But on the way, we were going to spend 10 days or so uh, in Crete, uh, Hellenic Air Force Base. And it was our second day there, I think. We hadn't been there long and it was a training trip and it didn't go well. One of the maneuvers um, went wrong and we collided head on, myself and the then Red 7. Um, had a head-on collision and we were low. You know, it was only 100 feet when we executed the maneuver. My last input was to push, so I knew I was going down, um, doing 400 miles an hour each. So, you know, it was, a, it was a big bang with 800 mile an hour of closure. And I, I wasn't going to stay around, you know, disorientated because my canopy had shattered and I thought I'm not staying here. So I pulled the handle and, and took, the, uh, took the Martin Baker way out. That's mad. And but can you remember much of it? I, I remember absolutely everything um, up to pulling the handle. Um, and then I actually I got knocked, the force of the ejection, I got knocked out. Um, and I spent about six seconds in the parachute before I hit the ground because we were so low. Uh, it was only about six sessions, seconds in the chute. Um, I came to um, as I hit the ground pretty much um, with you know, smoke and fire everywhere. And uh, because we were display practicing, there was a supervisor right 230 meters away from where we crashed because you know that was the idea is that we were crossing at the datum point right in front of the supervisor so it just so happened there was a, a an emergency response team right there so within you know probably a minute if that it, there were people over me looking after me so uh, i remember everything i was pulling the handle and then from hitting the ground coming to is is the next memory so there's probably a blank of about six or seven seconds where i'm unconscious Wow, I was going to say, not, not much really happened there, but it sounds like you were that low anyway. It sounds like you just banged out, and next thing you know, you're, you're on the ground anyway. But uh, well, yeah, the video of the accident is, it shows exactly that. You know, it's it's the collision, um, it pans onto the other jet and then pans back briefly, and then the jet's on the ground. So, you know, it was, um, it was, you know, pretty, uh, pretty quick succession of events. And what was recovering from that like? Were you, were you injured at all? I did. I was more injured than I thought I was, actually. I I had dislocated my shoulder. I had um, quite a lot of um, lacerations on my arms and my face. And uh, more importantly, I damaged both my both my knees. I hit the ground hard, unconscious, and my legs, my legs bent backwards. So I ripped all the ligaments and tendons in my knees, which I didn't know about at the start. So I thought, ah, pff, dislocated shoulder, I'll be back flying again in a week or two. As it happened, uh, quite a few weeks in hospital, bouts of surgery, three months in a wheelchair, and uh, nearly 10 weeks of rehab. And unfortunately, I didn't get my med cap back for a year. So um, it was a year off proper flying. I got to, I, I convinced the doctors to let me fly in the backseat of the Reds jets, you know, six months after the accident. But that was just as a passenger, just to go and experience it before I left the team. But uh, yeah, it took a year to to get back to, to full fitness. Wow. Especially, was there any disappointment there? Because that was your last year as the team you knew you were leaving. Was there a disappointment that you didn't get to do the display season? to be honest with you, the things that put everything into perspective, yes, I was a bit grumpy, you know, for the first couple of days because, you know, I was I was more ashamed that it happened on my watch, you know, this synchro pair don't hit each other. You know, this, I was a synchro leader. This is not, this is not 
shouldn't have happened on my watch. So I was disappointed in myself as to why it happened. Um, but I got airlifted out of Greece into the UK and I went to Selyuk Hospital, which at the time, so this is 2010, Iraq and Afghanistan campaigns are ongoing. You know, there are guys and girls coming back from theater who have life-changing injuries. You know, they have got limbs missing. They've had real severe um, trauma. And I was put on the same ward as these guys and girls, you know, and to, to, to have somebody in your bed who's lost two limbs and will, their life will never be the same again. I had all my limbs. They weren't functioning properly, but they were going to be after some, you know, some surgery and rehab, they were going to be fine. And you just got to put everything into perspective. It, there was no point in sulking about not being a Red Arrows pilot anymore because I was alive and I had all my limbs. You know, it, I, I, I couldn't have been any more grateful to the fact that I was in that situation. And having that perspective probably changed my entire outlook on the whole situation because had I just gone to a normal hospital ward, I probably would have been sulking and felt very sorry for myself. But when you're surrounded by those people, that their lives have completely changed forever. That There's no there's no even space to consider how badly done by you are when you're going to be absolutely fine in a year's time. Wow. Yeah. You, you never really think of those things really. It's, it's kind of, I know myself, you get into accident, you go into your, your own kind of head, but like that, when you're exposed to stuff like yourself, um, it really, really puts into perspective everything. Indeed. Yeah. And, um, and then following on going to Headley court, which was the um, defense rehab center and being again, surrounded by people who, the most inspiring guys and girls that they've got both of their legs have been amputated, but they could do more physical stuff on a, on a, you know, a exercise ball than I could, you know, they were so determined to, to try and live as best a life they could, given that the situation they'd been put in, there was absolutely no place for feeling sorry for yourself. It definitely was not, um, not an option. Yeah. Yeah. And then, when you got back to the team, when you were said you managed to convince the doctors to let you go back season, was there any apprehension at all getting back in back into flying? <laughs> uh, no, absolutely not. The, completely the opposite. I was just desperate, absolutely desperate to get in the jet. Um, in fact, the first so I joined with uh, the chap I joined with in two thousand and seven. Uh, at the time, he was Red Nine. So the first trip I did with him, so he, we flew. I flew in the back of Red Nine's jet, and then the next trip I was in with. Um, Red Seven is the guy who I'd collided with. I was straight in his back seat because oh, you know right. I just I just wanted to go and do the synchro stuff again. You know, that's where that's where the real fun was, and I was just desperate to go and do it. Brilliant. <laughs> and then, so after that, you've you've left the team. That's your three years done now. Um, was it hard to adjust to your desk job afterwards? Uh, that is definitely. Um, I talk about the situation I was in in terms of didn't feel sorry for myself, but. What had happened then was I was leaving the team on promotion, as I mentioned, to go to a desk job um, in a predominantly civilian environment. I was in a procurement team, <clears throat> predominantly civilian, which wasn't anywhere near close knit. It was the opposite end of close knit because we just, you know, we worked together nine to five and then didn't really socialize out of work. So I found that very difficult, gone from one extreme to the other, that you're in the, the for I think, one of the closest knit teams there is to no close-knit team or, or team ethos whatsoever i found that very difficult to adjust and i was you know, i was living on my own in bristol at the time so i didn't have any any um close friends in bristol you know all my friends and family were in lincolnshire so you know it was just a really odd existence um but it didn't last long you know i didn't start that till january 2011 and i was out of there again by december 2011 so 
And is, was it was that to join the, the team again as Red Ten? Exactly to go back to go back to the Red Arrows. <clears throat> yeah, but, but what I did to to keep myself uh, keep myself sane is that I I started flying for the Air Experience flight. Oh wow! That's so cool. once a, once a week or once a fortnight, whatever I could achieve getting out of the office was to go to St Athen in South Wales and fly the Grob Tutor to fly Air Cadets around, and that was genuinely some of the most rewarding flying ever. You know, I've done some pretty cool things in, in aeroplanes, but but flying a cadet for the first time or doing aerobatics with a cadet for the first time, knowing how special it was to me when I did it back in the in the 90s, it, it just seeing the look on their face when you took off or when you went upside down or did a loop, you know, I just knew how special that was for me however many years previous. So that that was really rewarding. And, and yeah, the Grob Tutor's not an aeroplane to shout about, but... It is when it's your first go at doing something like that. You know, that is uh, a real experience. And I knew how much it meant to them. So so the the most enjoyable thing about my desk job in Bristol was going to St. Athen and uh, and giving these kids flying experiences because I knew I just knew how important it was for me back in the day. That's I love talking to someone like yourself as well who loves sharing their passion. And um, you're still so passionate about it. You've, you've done all this stuff behind you. You've done how many years in aviation and yet you're still passionate as you were probably by at day one well i think there's a uh, <laughs> the old adage about fighter pilots they love talking about two things that flying in themselves <laughs> yeah, <so> you, <laughs> you put the two together then uh, you can't go wrong i remember i did um myself and yourself we did a, a air mobility flight uh, going up to see the, the northern lights in 2017 and i remember when you were up on stage having having a chat and introducing uh, tim peak was with us when you were introducing Tim Peak, I remember one thing that stood out was you were saying that uh, when there's a Red Arrows pilot in the room, they like to let you know there's a Red Arrows pilot in the room, unless there's an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. If there are no Formula One drivers or astronauts, then uh, yeah, you, you, you like to think yourself the coolest as a Red Arrows pilot. But yeah, when Tim Peak was there, it didn't work. And yeah, I've been in, in the company of Formula One drivers and you can't use that either. Well, going back, you talked about Formula One drivers. Didn't you get to race your hawk against Lewis Hamilton in his Formula One car? I, I did, yeah, very lucky. That was, in fact, that still is my number one best Red Arrows memory was was racing Lewis. Yeah, I, I'm a huge Formula One fan anyway, um, and uh, I got the opportunity to have a little race with him on the runway at Scampton. With I had David Coulthard in my back seat, and we went and raced uh, up the runway at uh, Scampton. Yeah, what a fantastic day that was. I have to say, it sounds really cool. I've seen I've seen the videos, the official stuff that gets put out and everything. It, it just looked awesome. And then to see Lewis Hamilton lying in his F1 car up with you sitting on the left-hand side already just to go, it was amazing. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about that was that was that was a pre-hybrid, if you know much about Formula One, that was the, the old school Formula One, so before the hybrid engine, so the really noisy ones. And we one of the passes we did over the runway, he was at full throttle, you know, going down the runway at, whatever he was doing 190 miles an hour um we were doing 550 knots which was the max speed of the hawk so <clears throat> full throttle the cockpit was fairly noisy the air conditioning system and the pressurization system was actually quite noisy and of course you're wearing a helmet with ear protection and i and we flew over the top of him at 100 feet um and i could still hear his car his car and him changing gear i mean that's how noisy those cars were wow. they were doing 600 plus miles an hour with engine noise, with cockpit noise, and and the ear, ear cups in our helmets, but could still hear his car, and that is still a very vivid, vivid memory about how loud that car was. 
I can only imagine, like, did, did you get to see it racing up and down the runway, standing on the ground? Like, what, what was the noise of it like when you were... Not there, but I've um I've done quite a lot of work with, with Formula One since. Um, and, yeah, so I've had the opportunity to be in and around Formula One cars. And, yeah, it, it is a ear-splitting noise with the old the old school engines. The newer ones are much better now than they were at the start. But, yeah, ear-splitting noise and, and fantastic. Everyone loves a bit of the smell of petrol and the sound of engines, right? Oh, definitely, definitely. It, it's it's uh, my dad. He, he races motorbikes, um, classics, and um, just when he starts his bike up, it's just a straight exhaust pipe. When he starts that up, the smell and the noise is just f fantastic. And you kind of yeah. you miss that. You know, when an old car drives by and you get that smell and of everything, you, you miss that because you don't get it with anything else. No, exactly. And uh, I, I love, I just love the smell of two-stroke engines as well. Yes. Uh, old school two two-stroke uh, bike or outboard motorboat engines you know they are i love that smell not as good as uh as the smell of avgas though no you can't beat that i do love jet a1 though when it's uh, when when, when yeah, it's uh, true. the turbine starts up and you think oh yeah no, that's a lovely smell yeah i have to say st stood next to a hawk when that starts that has a very good smell but um the the real the best smell um i'm sure we'll come on to it is when when you start a merlin and you just you've got the cockpit open, and you get the smell of the of the starting Merlin come wafting into the cockpit. That now that is a, an incredible smell. I, I've never experienced that, but maybe one day. But uh, you know, you're, well, <laughs> just, yeah. I think everybody everybody has to experience that once in their life. It's on the bucket list. It's definitely on the bucket list. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, so going back to, to Red Ten, how did you come about to, to being Red Ten? Because you've done your three years on the team. Yeah, Red Red Ten was a little bit different, but so before my accident, uh, Red Ten was just um, a flight lieutenant from around the Air Force who, uh, in fact, it moved to a squadron leader job, but um, unrelated. But it was just a another fast jet pilot who was then brought in as the, the almost through the spare was the commentator and did a bit of flight safety stuff. And then after my accident, that one of the findings was that it wasn't any. Um, continuation of experience in the supervisory chain. So nobody outside of Reds 1 to 9 had any Red Arrows experience. So they, the proposal was that Red 10 or the officer commanding would have had Red Arrows experience. Um, so they um, brought in a guy who had been in the team previously. He came to be Red 10 in 2000, ready for 2012. So he joined in 2011. But then unfortunately... 2011 was a, a shocking year for the Red Arrows. You know, there were two tragic accidents in, in August with John Egan and in November with Sean Cunningham. And those two guys were killed you know, within three months of each other, totally separate accidents, totally unrelated. You could argue they weren't even related to what the Red Arrows were doing. They were just freak fast jet accidents. Unfortunately, that meant that there was a shuffle around in the team. So the guy who had gone to be Red 10 was then uh, chosen to uh, replace Sean after his accident. So he was then not able to be Red 10. They needed a person who could quickly fill the position. Um, I think people knew how desperate I was to get back in the team as well, having left it in fairly short order. Um, so I was asked if I'd go back and be Red 10. So um, it was going to be a two-year job, go back, do two years as Red 10, and then move on. And uh, that's how it started. So end of 2011, I went back to Valley, learned to fly the Hawk again, and then I was back over at Scampton. Well, you mentioned it's meant to be two years. If I'm not mistaken, you've done six years. Yeah, it started off as two and then it was, well, can you do a third? Okay, I'll do a third. And then they said, well, look, we can't find any any candidates to to um, to replace you. Would you consider retouring to do a whole a whole nother tour? Um, 
to which I said, well, yeah, why not? You know, I'm getting to fly red jets. Uh, I'm in a team that I absolutely love. I adore. Um, I was thoroughly enjoying the role. Yeah, actually, a display pilot in the Red Arrows is an awesome job. I think Red 10 is better just because of the, the breadth of activity. You, you just involve with so many different things. You get in so many different um, aspects of the team. Um, you know, meeting people, inspiring people on the ground, going to an air show where you're the only person in a red suit. The other nine are at the airport and you're the only person representing the team on the ground. You know, I thought was a very important role. Um, when I first started doing it, I was a little bit jealous of the guys out there doing the flying. I just wanted to get back in the cockpit and do the flying again. But that, that was very short lived, you know, because then I started getting into the role of Red 10 and, and fell in love with it. Absolutely. And you get a real buzz from the feedback you get from the crowd, you know, the, the clapping and cheering that, that the crowd give when, when the Red Arrows arrive and, and you're sort of geeing them up over the commentary. Um, it was it was really enjoyable in the end. Uh, I got into it in the end and, and really enjoyed it. And from your time as Red 10, have you got a favourite display or anything? Does anything stand out? Uh, yeah, as a, as a commentary side of it, there were there are a few. Um, the top top one's got to be uh, it was the seventy fifth anniversary of D Day. Um, so we were in Portsmouth. Seventy fifth? No, it must have been the seventieth. Yeah, it was seventieth anniversary of D Day um, in Portsmouth on South Sea Common beautiful day um a massive massive crowd on south sea common and the commentary area was right in the middle of the crowd so you know i was just surrounded by hundreds of thousands of people who were reacting to you know red white and blue flags and the red arrows flying you know you, you can't get much more british than that and it was it was such an experience and i got to meet some d-day veterans that day and just the whole day was just mind-bogglingly fantastic in terms of the opportunities i was getting on that day and to live and breathe britishness what is the best of british you know this is uh, remembering 70 years ago what those guys went through thanking them for it honoring them and and loving the fact that you're british and and uh, and just everyone enjoying themselves and it was brilliant so that was that was definitely up there at the isle of white festival was a good one where um, I was on stage at the Isle of Wight Festival. Again, hundreds of thousands of people looking at this stage. Um, they hadn't been told the Red Arrows were coming. So okay. the organisers kept it completely from them. Yeah, so they had no idea. So I got on stage and then the organisers said, look, we don't want any commentary for this one. Um, we've, we've, we've got a soundtrack that we've put together. So just stand on the stage and enjoy a Red Arrows display uh, in front of you know, however many tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Um but the cheers from that crowd, you know, I, I know now what it feels like to be a pop star on stage at a massive music festival, um, even though I wasn't doing anything at all. <laughs> but it was great. It was brilliant. Um, yeah, so there were definitely some some highlights. Um, uh, going as, as Red 10 in 2012, I actually was in the formation for Flypass because it was only a seven ship display. So I, I was Red 9 when we did um, transits and Flypass. So I got to be involved with the the London Olympics opening ceremony, wow. uh, Queen's Diamond Jubilee, um, you know, just some incredible opportunities that, you know, they are up there in the in the top five memories of Red Arrows as well. You know, opening ceremony for the London Olympics, one point four billion people watching this on television. You know, this wow. is a this is a big deal. You know, flying over London and uh, yeah, no pressure. I had Chief of the Air Staff in my back seat as well, so um, absolutely no added pressure. 
any little mistake you, you'd have picked up on it. Oh, <laughs> uh, I tell you the, the profanities that came out of my mouth on that trip. Yeah, that was a lot of pressure. I did. I have to admit that was definitely one where I was feeling the pressure. So one, one that really stands out for me is you guys had come to Dublin in 2016. So I, I moved over here in July uh, 2016. So the week beforehand, you guys had come to Dublin to, to display at the Bray um, Air Display. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I remember yourself, you were down, you were doing the commentary, you just opened the show, blue skies, we got a full show, it was, it was amazing. And I remember the Freke Tricolori were displaying um, at the same thing, but I think they were closing it. So you guys came anyway, uh, did an absolutely fantastic display. It was my first time seeing the, the full display where there wasn't a cloud base or anything like that. And then went back to Casement Aerodrome in, in Beldonald. And then um, the commentator at that, at that point was like, oh, ladies and gentlemen, the next display you, you're going to love. Um, they're just doing a fly pass. I was like, oh, here come the Freke Tricolori. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for... And I thought, as he went to say the Freke Trickle already, it was it was the Red Arrows and you guys, as you were transiting back over the uh, Irish, uh, yeah. had come and given us a second fly pass that nobody <laughs> was expecting. <laughs> yeah, I remember that very well. Yeah, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed the Bray Air show. That was uh, a really, really good show. I, I, I came across to Dublin to do the survey uh, with the all the organisers um, a few months previously. And just got looked after royally, you know, just really well looked after. And then the reception we got when we arrived at Casement, I think we got there late. Uh, it was just, it was a difficult day with the weather getting in and then actually performing at the show was, was brilliant. I was due to be there, I think in 2019, we were meant to come across with the blades, but the weather weather prevented it. Yeah, because I, I, I think the morning of that as well, actually 2016 wasn't great because I remember we... Um... We actually drove to Casement to stand on a mud mound to see if we could get a, a view of, of, of the Reds. And uh, <laughs> right. as, as you do when, when, when you're young and love aviation and stuff. And I remember we were driving down in the rain to the point where me and my mates were chatting about, oh, is this going to go ahead or not? But we were like, you know what, we'll go to Bray anyway, just in case. And I'm so glad we did now. It was, uh, yeah, what a great, I think we actually displayed there in 2018 as well. Oh, wow. Um, I think when I came, yeah, I'd gone back and displayed there as well. I'm pretty sure we did. <clears throat> I think it was either it was either 16 and 17 or 16 and 18. So so good because I think it was the first time. It's the first time I definitely seen you um, in the country. I, all the other times I had to go up to Port Rush um, to see yeah. it. Uh, which which it was so we did nice. we did a display in uh, I want to say Galway. Um, oh, yeah. Back in 2008 or 2009, we displayed in Galway. Uh, it was a tall ships race, I think. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool being there for that, um, that was good. Yeah, I, I think it was challenging weather that day as well. Actually, <laughs> it's very rare you, you don't get challenging weather in Ireland. Yeah, too true. <laughs> so you you've then so you've done all that. You've now secured yourself already as the longest serving Renaro's pilot. Um, then you you you've left to another was it was it another desk job that that you left to do. It it was a sort of desk job. Um, so I'd, I'd made the decision that I was leaving the Royal Air Force anyway. Um, it just got to the point where uh, I had done all of the flying that I was probably ever going to have the opportunity to do. Um, there was going to be nothing flying-wise that was going to be on a par with what I'd have the opportunity to have done. Couldn't be read to him forever, unfortunately. Um, so uh, I just made the decision. You know, I, had, I had an option to leave point. You know, there are various stages you can leave the military and i had one coming up so i'd made the decision to to leave i had a year left to do um i'd already been invited to join the blades aerobatic team so while i was still serving in the air force they asked me to be uh, a part-time member 
um, as I was in a desk job. But I say it was a sort of desk job because I was still flying. I was in exam wing of the Central Flying School as the air safety manager, but I was also still flying the Hawk um, as an examiner and instructor. So I would go back to Scampton and do instrument rating exams on the Red Arrows pilots or um, do their annual check rides um, and do air tests on the Hawk and, and various other bits and bobs. So I was still flying the Hawk, albeit I was in the Central Flying School, but I was also, out in my spare time, I was working up to be Blade 3 with the Blades aerobatic team. And then before you could come out, you it was due to a tragic event where you got called back to the team for the centenary year of the RAF. It was, yeah, um, utterly tragic again for the Reds. And and just after I'd left once again, the you know, I was in the Central Flying School, as I mentioned, as their safety manager. Um, the team were in their workup for the 2018 season. And then uh, another dreadful accident saw the death of Corporal John Bayliss, one of the engineers who was sitting in the back of of uh, one of the aircraft that crashed. Um, the pilot survived it with an ejection, but unfortunately John didn't make it and uh, was sadly killed. So the pilot was however injured, which meant he couldn't continue um, with his role um, as Red 3. So uh, the fact that I was still flying the Hawk, I'd only just left the team. I still lived in the area. I'd been Red 3, albeit nine years previously, 10 years previously. Um, they said, yeah, you probably would be the, the quickest person to get back in because there's only six weeks left until the end of the training period to slot back in. The quickest person probably would be me to go and train quickly to to get up to standard ready for that six-week test, if you like. So that's what happened, yeah. I, I think I got that, got told that on the Wednesday and following Monday, I was I was at Scampton again, you know, wearing a, a Red Arrows name badge once more. So tragic circumstances and... Um, you know, I felt for the team, it was really difficult. You know, it's difficult enough when when aircrew um, suffers tragic accidents. But, you know, when it's a guy who is in the back of the aeroplane, this is the, the pinnacle of someone's engineering career is to be chosen to be a, a flying circus engineer. To then have that uh, happen is just really hard for the team to uh, to bear. So difficult times, very difficult times. And how, how did you find it? Because it, it's quite a big thing to be brought back for. It's a senior, senior year because you guys had events planned all over the, the, the country. Um, how did you find slotting back in and having to get ready in that six weeks? I think that was the important part. You just nailed it. That the 2018 was the, the RAF's 100 year. And it was important that the Red Arrows had a, a Diamond 9 um, to celebrate the centenary. You know, that was uh, that was quite a crucial thing. So with the short training time and to fit in with all those events, the the training was compressed to that six weeks I mentioned. So to meet the initial uh, event, I can't remember what it was, but uh, would it would it would it be possible with me coming in? And to be honest with you, it was. Um, it's a bit like riding a bike. You know, nothing, not a lot of changed in ten years. There are a few, a couple of new maneuvers or different nuances to how the maneuvers were flown. The, the references might have very slightly changed. They change year on year, just depending on how it looks. Yeah, you, you, you try to change the references based on what it looks like in the debrief. The biggest thing is starting to learn to work with my opposing number. So the guy on the right wing, red two, because of course it's the, the symmetry is all set up by reds two and three and the timing, a lot of the formation changes is set up by reds two and three. So um, that was the, I wouldn't say the biggest thing, but that was one of the most notable things was just learning to how he did things. 
so that he didn't have to change the way he operated that I would just mold around him because he'd been, he was new to it and had been doing it for the previous five months. Um, so yeah, that was the most notable thing. Uh, but to be honest, you know, I've gone back to a team where, you know, I love the team. I love the job. Um, we were pretty much straight out to, to Greece for training after that. So the good thing about Greece, the idea of the exercise that you're putting the polish on the display and yes, the weather is more favorable than Lincolnshire at that time of year, but actually it's the six weeks of focusing on nothing but red arrows. Now you've got no distractions. You are just flying three, four times a day and getting the display honed. And that is you know, six weeks of that. And actually having experienced it previously, it wasn't, it wasn't too onerous. Okay, so that's it, it's still quite a little bit of pressure but it wasn't um it wasn't yeah it wasn't hard to go overcome and of course the, the the team i'd been i'd been red 10 with the team the previous year so um there was only one new guy in the team that i hadn't worked with before so i'd like to think i got on well with all of them but you'll have to ask them that <laughs> that was did, did you know then that that after that centenary year um you you were coming out of the raf yeah, so at this point, I've, I've I've still had the decision made that I was leaving at the end. So October 2018 was my last day in the Air Force, uh, or last day at work, and that was, so Red Arrows was my last day at work. Um, by this point, I'd already been offered a full-time job with the Blades, so I, I stepped out of Red 3 and became Blade 3, with, quite literally with a couple of weeks in between. In fact, I was, I was in the cockpit of an extra when... Uh, John's accident occurred. I was at Sidewall training. I landed, and one of the uh, one of the ground staff at Sidewall came over to me, knowing I was the air safety manager, and that I would I would want to know about what happened. He came straight over when I shut the engine down. And said, "Right, you need to get on your phone because um, I think you're going to be busy." And sadly, I was. Wow, wow, wow! wow. It's it's it, a uh, takes away from your your. It's 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 something that just hangs there, isn't it? It's like because you're you're training for a new team and been brought back, but there's still always that tragicness of of what happened. Indeed, yeah, and uh, as I say, that that was for the entire season. Yes, it was it was great to be able to celebrate the RS one hundred, but yeah, you know, the whole season we yeah our thoughts were definitely with John on his team. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, I can definitely see see how it can can affect through, throughout the whole season because it, it just happened and then as well for. Um, you yourself um, been the air safety officer been told then as well that you need to get on your phone because you're going to be busy yeah yeah unfortunately that was the, that was the least of the worries for the for, for people involved it was uh, yeah very difficult times but onwards and upwards exactly exactly so then you've you've left the RAF on you've left the RAF in the centenary year and that that's what a, what a way to go out as well as with the red arrows in the centenary year of the RAF and now you've you've joined the blades who for people listening who don't know what the blades are the blades are the world's only aerobatic airline um and they're also a team just made up of ex red arrows and would I be correct mike yeah exactly right yeah so we are uh, by the world's only aerobatic airline we operate to the same standards as EasyJet, Ryanair, British Airways, we, we operate under an airline operator certificate. So very, um, very strict criteria for the issue of an AOC and the blades as part of 2XL Aviation. We actually have an AOC and we operate passenger flying um, in our extra 300. So you know, we are in, in aerobatic aeroplanes. They are designed for nothing but aerobatics. And we put four of them together and we go with passengers who uh, buy tickets to fly with us and go upside down. Yeah, a couple of meters away from each other. 
That's so cool. So did that take any getting used to it? Because all of a sudden you've gone from flying a something that, that's very, very fast uh, and not taking passengers to flying something that's slower, but taking passengers on, on displays with you. Did that take a lot of getting used to it? Uh, uh, well, the, from the passenger side, actually, as I mentioned before, we did actually fly quite a few passengers. So in during training sorties and certainly shortlist week, you know, you've got somebody in your back for every trip for a whole week. So it, there were passengers with you a lot of the time, not for public displays. And that's the same with the blades. You can't we can't take passengers on public displays. Um, but in terms of the the flying the aeroplane, they're very different. Of course, the, the Hawk is a fast jet. It's heavy. It's powerful. It's um, it's responsive. And I think the only thing that is similar is the responsiveness. Um, but because it's a, the extra is much smaller, it makes it a tighter display. Actually, they're broadly similar in terms of what you do. Um, th there are things you can do with an extra that you wouldn't dream of doing in a Hawk. Some of the sort of what we call gyroscopic aerobatics, you wouldn't even think about doing that in a Hawk because it would not end well for you. Um, but then there are things that you could do in a Hawk, you know, flying along the ground at 500 miles an hour at hundred feet. You couldn't do that clearly in an extra. So, that each each airplane has its own attributes but but from being red three to going to blade three what is noticeable is that my i can picture my hand inputs that i make my hand and feet inputs that i make to stay in position in a, in a formation loop as red three and they are pretty much identical to the movements i make as blade three and okay. um, just imperceptible movements of the control column and the throttle uh, the difference being in the in a propeller driven airplane as you slow down you need to put some rudder in so you just got to use your feet a bit more as the the speed effect of the propeller um uh, you have to just think about that which you don't have to do in a, in a jet because there's no propeller effect so but but from throttle and control column pretty similar inputs to be honest and did it take long getting used to the extra compared to, to the hawk when you're saying about putting the rudder and stuff in did it take many sorties before you had that nailed uh, not really. I've been flying light aircraft, uh, as a hobby sort of, um, in and around being in the reds anyway. So, um, my missus could never understand why I was paying to go flying in a, in a Cessna or a, or a PA 28 when my day job was flying airplanes. Um, but yeah, I, I ran a flying club at, uh, Scampton. So, oh, wow. you know, I, I just enjoy, I just love being in the air and if, if there's an opportunity to do it, then I'll do it. Um, so single engine piston flying wasn't brand new to me when I came to the blades. Um, what was relatively new was flying with a tailwheel or operating an airplane with a tailwheel. I'd actually got the conversion on that a few years previously in a, in a Cessna, um, but hadn't really used it at all. So that was the difference in coming to the extra was that now you're flying a tail dragger um, and there are some nuances to think about with that. But in terms of the display, it's it's broadly similar. Um, and of course, we're, we're in a team of extra and pilots, as you mentioned. So, you know, the, the procedures have been born from the red arrows procedures, the art, the radio procedures are pretty much identical. So the standard operating procedure of the blades, if you put them side by side to the red arrows, yeah, there are, there are differences of course, because it's, it is a different display. It's a different airplane, but the, the underlying um, procedural stuff that happens on the blades is, has come from the reds. So that would, that would made it a relatively small leap. Just going back on the radio calls, actually, Mike, um, I, I heard somewhere you hear Red One say it all the time that they're the only the Red Arrows are the only pilots who are allowed to shout on the radio. Is that true? <laughs> no, I've I've heard a lot of pilots shouting. Um, 
interesting you say that though because when i was red seven the year i was red seven 2009 we were really shouting you know it just became almost part of the theatrical performance when we were doing the displays <laughs> to the point where i landed we landed at kemble which was the the end you know, the um ancestral home of the red arrows this is where they were based in the nap back in the uh, in the 60s and 70s and we landed at kemble after this display and we met a load of the founding members of the reds and the, the team members from the 60s and 70s and i got a proper ear bending from one of the 60s guys for how disgraceful it was with the shouting on the radio and so we kind of toned it down after that and then when i became red 10 and i could hear the guy shouting on the radio it actually started to wind me up as well so <laughs> um yeah poachik turned gamekeeper and uh, a massive hypocrite is how i would label myself for that one so i take it you don't shout on the radio with the blades then no there's a there's a couple of shouts where we we can indicate to the, the other guys and girl how how much we're enjoying it by how we respond to certain radio calls so but when you're doing this stuff day in day out in a normal year um yeah there are slight variations on it to sort of make things rather than it be the feel the same every time you know you put variations on things to just to give it an extra edge and yeah so that would be one of them is that if you respond in a certain way to a maneuver call then that means you're really enjoying it or you know if it's not going so well then you might not respond in a certain way brilliant <laughs> i always wondered that question i had to ask though i always heard the red one saying oh you know we're the only ones yeah that, i think that was the danger men documentary as well jace jace um realized that, that his, his pilots were shouting and the blue angels and the thunderbirds didn't do that <laughs> brilliant and then um so you, it's you qualified in the extra 300 how long was it before because you're an instructor on it how long um was it before you got your instructor rating on it uh i started full-time with the blades in start of march 2019 so i've done a little bit of part-time flying and training up till then i had to get my commercial pilot's license so i really? left left the air force in october um and then in january i got my commercial license just i had to do all the exams because they recognize a little bit of your military experience but when we went to the european um side of things with the arsa they they did they didn't recognize a lot of the military qualifications so you know, all 14 ground exams a flying course instrument rating um all had to be done so i had a couple of months to do that before i then started the job so i yeah, I got. I started in March nineteen, and I did my instructor rating at the end of March. So it was only a month on the in the team before wow. I did the instructor rating. But that again, this is where they did recognise some of the instructor qualifications because you know six hundred hours of instructing in the Air Force. Actually, they do see that as okay. That's that's a lot of experience from an instructor point of view. Now you can be an instructor in the, in the civilian world. Was the instructor course on the extra, was it kind of like the tornado where they were like, well, you've, you've plenty of hours flying. You just do a checkout on it and then they're... they're yeah, no, exactly that. So the examiner, examiner turned up at, um, at Cywell, um turned up and told me, right, I want you to teach me... It was stalling he wanted me to teach him. So teach me a stalling exercise. Um, and then you, so you teach a, a canned package of stalling uh, in accordance with CAA principles. And then... Um, it was a case of right i'm going to do an aerobatic maneuver as he he this is him talking as a student um you then have to work out what he's doing wrong uh, fault find it fault and fault analysis and then teach him how to do it properly so i think we did three or four of those the examiner was an aerobatic pilot anyway so you know he was 
purposely doing things wrong. I had to work out what it was, teach him how to do it right. And um, it's very enjoyable, actually, you know, because um, the guy hadn't had a huge amount of time in the extra. He'd flown it once or twice before, but um, yeah, he was quite keen on just flying the aeroplane. But then at the end of the flight, it goes back to the when I was mentioning about the A2 in the Air Force, you then get the ground exam where he starts picking all the, the tricky subjects out and asks you about meteorology and, uh, and flight instruments and all those sort of things. And then you have to describe it in a way, in an instructional way, rather than answer the question. So that, that yeah, that's just something to get your head around. And um, yeah, so that's, it's a three-year qualification. So at the end of three years, I have to go and do it all again. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> How many years have you done it now then? Is it, you've got, must be, you, 2019, I think you started, wasn't it? Yeah, so it's two, I'm coming up to two years. Yeah, and week after next, it'll be two years in the blades. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And you, I take it you're, you're still loving it and enjoying it. Well, one of the years has been brilliant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the first year, 2019 was an incredible year. Um, 2020 was uh, not so much. No, it goes back to flight simulator, doesn't it? It's... <laughs> yeah it's um oh, it's very poor very we did one we did one public display last year wow was that all yeah and i think in in 2019 we yeah we did probably in the in the 50s or 60s if not more than that wow i remember seeing this actually down in uh, dunsfold i think it was the last ever dunsfold and, yeah um, i remember seeing this doing a display there and it was it was really really good to watch especially as with knowing that it was the last one in, in dunsfold yeah absolutely and um I'd enjoyed being at Dunsfold with the with the Hawks and the history of the place. You know, that's where the, the Harrier was first test flown and the Hawk was, in fact, first test flown. So there's a lot of history there. And then to know it's going to be a housing estate is uh, yes. pretty pretty painful. I, I always loved Dunsfold. I'm the same, my, my other half as well, she, she loves the Red Arrows. Um, and that was the closest we had ever been to the, to the Reds when we're standing along the, the um, display line. And you guys are literally just the other side of the runway. And it was the first time where we could actually make out your white helmets as you went past and the red suit in the cockpit. Yeah, yeah, it's a great place to display. It was really, really cool. Um, so I just want to touch on the, on the MBE, Mike. How did you come about being awarded the, the MBE and the fellowship? Uh, that's a good question. So the, the MBE, I knew absolutely nothing about it. Genuinely knew nothing about it. Um, it was Christmas Eve 2016, I guess. Um I was actually with my missus. We were walking to the pub to meet some mates Christmas Eve. I'd had, I'd had a missed call from my boss at you know, four o'clock, five o'clock Christmas Eve. And who calls? Boss doesn't call at five o'clock on Christmas Eve. So I ignored it. Um, then he rang again. I thought, right, I better answer this. Something, something important's happening, I think. So I answered it. And he, uh, we, were quite, we were probably 50 yards from the pub. And he said, uh, you sit down. Uh, no, boss, I'm walking to, the, walking to the pub. And he said, right. I just want to tell you that you've been uh, you've been awarded the MBE in the New Year's Honours list. Oh, <laughs> blimey! Um, but you can't tell anyone. <laughs> what? You can't tell anyone because you, you obviously it gets announced on on New Year's Eve, and no one's allowed to know before that point. But apart from the recipients, so <laughs> you're sworn to secrecy. So I walk into this pub with a massive grin on my face. <laughs> I can't tell anyone anything. What's wrong with you? Oh, nothing. It's just Christmas. I'm just happy. Um, obviously, I told my missus and uh, and my folks, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it, just what an honour. Yeah, I and that was for services to the Red Arrows. I was doing a job I love and I'm, a job I'm very passionate about, and um, they gave me a gong for it. So yeah, very grateful. Amazing. It, it, like, like I said at the start, it's what what a what a career. It it it's just and and you 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 keep adding to it. Um, which brings me on to, to the next bit, which is why I want to start the MBE now, because most people ask, what is the pinnacle of a career? And yourself, you've you've done the Red Arrows and everything, but it's you 
I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. You you soloed a Spitfire. Right? <laughs> yeah, so I keep saying that 2020 was a bad year, but it, it was in the majority. But there was one thing that happened, which was, yeah, I got to, got to fly solo in a Spitfire, which oh, is, is utterly magical it really is it's um so my two my two schoolboy dreams uh one of them was to be a red Aris pilot and display at the big and hell air show um which you know that's something i wanted to do since i was three years old but then growing up in big and hill um every year or every air show it was closed by a chap called ray hannah who uh, was a founding member of the red arrows so he uh was a founding member in 1965 he then became leader for for four years um, after that, so uh, very well-known, amazing pilot. He then became a, a very accomplished warbird pilot after his time in the military and flew this Mark 9 Spitfire MH434 and did the the most jaw-dropping display to close the air show every year. And it was a tribute to the Battle of Britain pilots. Um, you know, it was done to music. It was just, you could have heard a pin drop in the crowd. You know, I'm getting hairs on the back of my neck now talking about an, an event I was witnessing 40 years ago, 39 years ago. Um, but watching him do that, that was my other dream, was to to be a solo Spitfire display pilot at Big and Hill. Um, so 2009, I got to realise the first one. You know, I'd been in the Red Arrows a year. We couldn't display at Big and Hill in my first year because we were in America, as we talked about. So it was uh, the following year when I was synchro and uh, got to display uh, at Big and Hill. So that was tick, job number one. And then the next one was for me to get in a Spitfire. So obviously small steps you've got to be able to fly the thing first before you can display it and very very fortunate to have had a go in that this year uh, last year that's because even getting to fly in one is is a massive thing so how did it come about that you were offered the, the front seat effectively uh, it was I'd, I'd tried a couple of times to join the battle of Britain memorial flight while i was in the air force um unsuccessfully of course um because i would have been doing that otherwise um no but um i didn't get the job um partly because I was still in the Red Arrows, partly because I probably wasn't the best man for the job. Um, but I, I was quite disappointed by that because that was you know, the one thing that I really wanted to reach for, having done the Red Arrows stuff. From a selfish point of view, I wanted to now go and do the Battle of Britain Memorial stuff with those very important aeroplanes that they keep in the hangar there. Um, but I've always been passionate about warbirds, or well, any aeroplanes, of course, but particularly warbirds. And, and there is something about the Spitfire how iconic it is, how amazing it looks, how amazing it sounds, how much everyone loves it. You know, it is a national icon. And um, I, I wanted to get into the world of warbird flying. Um, I, I hadn't done anything about it proactively, really. Um, got to know the guys, uh, our neighbours at Sywell, where we're based at, with the blades at Sywell. There's a, a Spitfire outfit there uh, called Air Leasing, uh, which is run by a chap called Richard Grace, um, who flies or owns and operates the, the Grace Spitfire which was um, an incredible story about this Spitfire. It was the, the first Allied aircraft to shoot down an enemy aircraft on the 6th of June, 1944, over Normandy. Wow. So it's, from that point of view, you know, it is an incredible pedigree. It then actually went to the Irish Air Corps as a trainer after that, and then it then got bought by Richard's father um, in the 80s. Sadly, after he refurbished it, he was killed in a motor, uh, motor accident. Oh, um, my dad actually saying that it was a great, I didn't realize this was a great Spitfire. My dad did a lot of skydiving in Goodwood and it was based down there. And he used to help this guy clean the Spitfire and sit in it and everything. And my dad actually said he was with him that morning and he said, oh, no, I'm not going to fly today. The Windsock's all over the boat. And it was on the way home that my dad was saying that he was a uh, tragic. Oh, blimey. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
Oh, it's um, yeah, it's, it's a tragic story. But uh, what came out of that was um, so Nick's widow Carolyn uh, learnt to fly the Spitfire to display it in Nick's memory, um, and now their son has taken the mantle, uh, uh, taken it on, and, and is operating the business. Um, anyway, so we got to know each other through you know being neighbours at Cywell and operating on the display scene together. We've known each other for a number of years, and he just rang me up one day and said, "You got you got a minute for a chat." So I went over for a chat and he said, how would you like to fly my Spitfire? Oh, my jaw just hit the ground. You know, this was just, yeah, I thought he was joking. You know, pinch me. Um, so yeah, I, I got the opportunity and did uh, five or six conversion trips with an instructor in the back. I did, did two in the back seat, just observing almost, which in itself is, you know, an opportunity that <laughs> it, it just, uh, yeah, pinch, a, a pinch yourself moment and then jump in the front instructor in the back um richard then jumped in the back for one of these trips uh, we landed off the trip and he said right how do you fancy going on your own okay <laughs> he jumped out i taxied around and off i went and then he got on the radio in the tower I, you know first solos are normally just a circuit um uh, i got airborne thinking i was going to turn down wind for a circuit to land he jumped on the radio in air traffic he said well mate take it away for 10 minutes and do some arrows so wow. i did it was a beautiful Northamptonshire, really still summer's evening in September. And uh, yeah, I went and just flew in my aero sequence in the Spitfire 500 feet over Northamptonshire. Just amazing. Absolutely amazing. Was there moments where you're, you're sat there by yourself, inverted in the Spitfire, looking out at this elliptical wing where you just wanted to pinch yourself and be like, oh, I'm going to wake up any second. The whole flight. The whole flight. Yeah, all 15 minutes of it. It was just exactly that. Yeah, I'm just, can't, am I really doing this? Yeah. And unfortunately, because of the way that things have worked with COVID and, and other bits and bobs. I'd, I've only done one solo in it. So wow. that was towards the end of the summer. Um, it's now in quite heavy maintenance over the winter. You know, so the opportunities for flying it have been nil. Um, so I'm kind of hoping that in the next couple of weeks, they're going to wheel it out of the hangar, do its post maintenance test flight, and then give me a call to come and get, get current on it again. That would be so cool. So are you going to be flying passengers in it and everything? Yeah, so that's the idea, is that um, they operate um, as uh, ultimate warbird flights. So um, if you type in ultimate warbirds into Google, it'll come up with the, that website. And they operate um, a fleet of two-seat uh, warbirds. So they've got a Spitfire, they've got a, a Mustang, a P-51 Mustang, oh, wow. and a and a Bouchon, which is the, the sort of Spanish version of the Messerschmitt 109. They're all two-seaters. They're all dual-controlled, so you can actually fly them from the back seat yourself as well. Um, and they offer passenger rides in those. Uh, they've also got um, a Tiger Moth, which was quite nice to fly in the summer as well, just to get in the in the back of a Tiger Moth. And, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'll be doing in the summer is outside of the Blaze stuff when I've got some spare time, just hop over the airfield and jump in the front of the Spitfire, give someone a passenger experience in the Spitfire or the Tiger Moth, and then, uh, and then go back to the day job. So, so cool. I remember actually talking about the Spitfire. Um, I did a lot of competition flying for the um, UK national uh, uh, microlight team. And we were going down to the Isle of Wight uh, where we were doing a Franglaise competition. And uh, Paul said uh, he's, on, he's in Flylight, which is the other side of you guys, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. And he said, oh, we'll, we'll jump in taxi round and we'll grab some fuel. So at the same time as we're taxiing, the Spitfire's pulled up so we shut down i jump out anyway and the guy's like uh oh he's like oh i'm really sorry to i was like no no you take your time i said because i've never ever taxied up to a fuel pump before and I just let a spitfire go first it's amazing. and and Cywell is is incredible for that it is it is like a pilot's disneyland you know on a beautiful day in the summer when when there's no covid restrictions it it, it is 
there are families having picnics at the airfield. There's a restaurant there. There's a cafe there. There's a bar there. And there's all these warbirds operating. You've got the blades displaying. You've got helicopters flying in and out. You know, there are there are World War One replica aircraft there as well. Um, other aerobatic airplanes. So it's, it's such a great place to be. Um, and I don't know if if you've ever been to the hotel and the and the restaurant there I stayed in it it's all, lovely yeah so it's all done the aviators done out like an art deco type um aviation theme in fact the restaurant was opened by douglas barder back oh, in really the i didn't know that yeah yeah actually and there's a plaque in the restaurant that says opened by douglas barder so the, this place is steeped in aviation history and it is like a pilot's disneyland so if if you've got a nice day in the summer and uh coronavirus restrictions allow then definitely do a do a land away to sidewell for an overnight couple of beers and then and a nice meal i definitely have to put that on the agenda i'm actually i remember coming back from that um somewhere like it, it's just like disneyland for pilots i remember coming back from that competition and we were quite early in the morning and we joined overhead uh, in the sky ranger and i could see your guys aircraft lined up the other side i could see uh it was a spitfire and there was something else up so it could have been the mustang down the other end there was a couple of big helicopters doing some stuff yeah <laughs> uh, and it was it was just mad coming in overhead and thinking oh wow look look what i'm rubbing shoulders with yeah it's crazy isn't it for uh, i just i take my hat off to you mike you you've really really done really well there and i'm, I'm quite jealous of it oh, i do i i still pinching myself now and uh yeah the spitfire grin as i as i put on twitter you know every time i think about it and talk about it i've just got a ridiculously childish grin on my face so now working up to the display authority so um obviously we've got it in the in the extra um but it's a different type of display authority for um warbirds so because of the the power difference so um hopefully if if uh if the air show scene is going to be happening this year then fingers crossed i might be displaying a spitfire that would be so cool why, why i still can't believe i say that yeah it's amazing <laughs> So every time you've mentioned, every time you've said the word Spitfire, a grin has just appeared. <laughs> exactly. No, it's the Spitfire grin. Yeah, it's, it's impossible to get rid of it. Um, so, Mike, you also uh, do a lot of charity stuff. Can you tell us about the charities that, that you do stuff with? Yeah. Um, so through day job, through the Blades, I'm involved with the RAF Benevolent Fund. Uh, they are uh, the heart of the RAF family where they support all members of the RAF, be them serving veterans cadets family members of RAF personnel and just supporting them in any way they can um really amazing charity it helped me out when i was in my wheelchair after my accident actually i needed an, an electric wheelchair because of both my knees and my arm um i couldn't use a normal wheelchair otherwise i'd just go around in circles with only one arm operating so i got an electric one and it was the benevolent fund who who got me that so i'm very grateful to them so we do a lot of work through the blades um in supporting our charity partner, the RF Benevolent Fund. But then I've got, I'm actually the patron of two charities, which um, uh, I'm very proud to be. Unfortunately, the last year, I've not had the opportunity to really get involved too much. But um, the first one is a charity called Fly to Help. They're based at Gloucester Airport, um, which uh, they, I've been working with them through the Red Arrows for a number of years. They are set up by, um, by pilots for inspiring uh, other people so people who might have disadvantages through whatever it might be um underprivileged um terminally ill children terminally ill adults um just through the, the wonder of flight giving them opportunities to give some inspiration and a little bit of ray of hope and they're um they're called air smiles experiences and that's what the, this charity operates but on the sideline uh, they've got um another um uh, angle which is aim high 
which is inspiring youngsters into or showing them what uh, what fields of aviation there are available and using the charity to to promote aviation among the younger community really amazing charity um run by only a couple of people down at gloucester but they they try and get everywhere and do what they can so a, a challenging year or two for for the uh, for the charity and um hoping it starts picking up for them because it, they, they do such a good job right uh, the other charity i'm i'm proud to be a patron of is, is a big and hill based charity so um the nick davidson memorial flying scholarship um back in 2011 who nick davidson was a, a british airways pilot who had been an instructor at big and hill um sadly passed away from terminal cancer and in his will he said i want to donate a uh, flying scholarship to get a, a youngster through their ppl um so it was going to start off as just one one gesture but his widow then said well no let's make this a, a year an annual thing where we give a, a scholarship to a youngster and that's been going on for a few years now so um proud to be the patron of both uh, as i say i'd like to get involved more when when the circumstances permit but if your listeners could have a look at uh, the nick davidson memorial flying scholarship and fly to help would be uh, fantastic Perfect. I'll, I'll pop links in, in the um, description and stuff to, to them as well. Um, Mike, thank you so much for your time. I've, I've absolutely really enjoyed, and I hope the listeners have as well, of, of listening to your whole amazing career. And like you said, it just sounds like it's going to get better and better. Well, I, as I said, it's a, a fighter pilot talking about flying in himself. So <laughs> it's a, yeah, a very happy place to be. And um, I'm, I'm very, very proud and and grateful for the opportunities i've been given you know that's um it, it doesn't just happen um people have given me opportunities certainly from the air force perspective putting me in the right place at the right time the blades for giving me the flying they've given me and and now richard and his outfit for letting me fly their priceless heirloom in the spitfire so yeah i've been i'm very grateful and and very proud and uh loving the aviation life is uh is definitely the way forward Hopefully you get that PDA on the Spitfire this year and, and we'll, be, we'll be seeing you doing displays uh, everywhere in, in the Spitfire uh, in months to come, hopefully. I've got my fingers crossed. <laughs> so have we. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Thanks, Mikey. Have a good one.